Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and we are here to break down everything that happened in the world of WWE this past week. Not only are we talking about what transpired across SmackDown and Raw, but of course, Edge celebrated his 25th anniversary in WWE, and it may have well been a retirement as well. Will it be? We will find out at some point in the future, but we will discuss that on today's show. Before we get into it, as always, allow the Silver King to kick things off with a few reminders. First, right off the top, this podcast is all about Defy. So please, folks, stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Please visit Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. If you take a little extra time and leave a five-star written review, we will take a little extra time and read those written reviews right here on the show. In fact, we had two of them come in this past week, two very long, actually, uh, five-star reviews, and I'm going to read them because they were very praiseworthy uh, for your boy, The Silver King, and your other boy, Vintage Chris Vanini. Let's start with Truly Great Wrestling Podcast from Lil Stinker 5381 five stars, five-star rating for Silver King's CM Punk rant alone on the latest episode. Obviously, every episode is great. I listen to a handful of other wrestling pods, but no one seems to be comfortable enough to say Punk is a hypocritical, self-righteous man-baby, quite like the Silver King does. Bravo, sir. Love Adam and Chris's genuine takes. They do a solid job in actually discussing the wrestling week to week and not simply regurgitating wrestling Twitter. Keep up the good work, gents. That is quite a review. I appreciate that. Lil Stinker. We also got your professional pro wrestling podcast from Crip9. If you're looking for a professional pro wrestling podcast, look no further than getting over. It doesn't hurt that I agree with the majority of hosts Adam Silver King and Chris's opinions. Adam recently shared his methods for note-taking his recaps for wrestling shows. His move to move recall is expertly done in a blueprint for other wrestling podcasts. Adam and Chris lay out the facts of the latest news storylines, point out the issues, and most importantly, provide potential solutions. This was clearly demonstrated this past week with Silver King's 30-minute monologue on CM Punk's latest toddler tantrums. The pay-per-view previews, recaps, and reviews are straightforward. No nonsense. I listen to three wrestling podcasts loyally, and this is one of them. Your podcasts are appreciated. Craig J. That is a great review as well. I appreciate both of you, but beyond appreciation, because you know you can say you appreciate someone, but it doesn't really mean much. Folks, we acknowledge both of you. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement acknowledge. right there. Acknowledge. That's that's the definition of big acknowledgement, because both of those were indeed big uh, acknowledgements. Yeah. Chris, what do you got on those? I appreciate the specificity of those because we have we have tried to be a more detailed and nuanced wrestling podcast. Look, there's a million wrestling podcasts right. out there. We appreciate everybody who chooses to listen to ours. We try to do it in a specific way, and we appreciate um, that listeners uh, feel that because that's what we're trying to accomplish. Two things on, on both of those. Uh, that's on the second one. The first one, the CM Punk one, I wanted to be a part of that because uh, I tried. As you guys heard it, Adam was thinking all week trying to do it. But I was having car issues early last week, and then I traveled to Gainesville, your home away from mm-hmm. home, my alma mater, uh, to visit with the Gators. On the way back, I, uh, I flew out of Jacksonville. So on the way back, I stopped over at uh, the football stadium in Daly's place, 
and uh, CM Punk kicked me out. I couldn't believe it. You're I'm not a collider. On the list. Yeah, apparently know. you're not a collider. You're you're um you're a dynamite guy, and he doesn't appreciate <laughs> you. And heaven forbid you step foot into his locker room. I mean, I couldn't imagine. But no, uh, the specificity on those reviews is actually why we ask for five star written reviews. Don't get me wrong. When you guys say five stars, great podcast, my favorite, love Adam and Chris. That's cool too. Like the written review, really appreciate it. But the specificity of those going into details on why you like the show, why you like us as hosts. That is what convinces people to to listen to the program. And I'm going to tell you guys straight up, um, I've been getting a number of DMs, I would say probably for the last month or so. And and they just kind of come randomly with new listeners asking questions for the show or just wanting to talk via DM or, or tweet or whatever the case might be. And they're telling us, we found you guys via Spotify, listened to an episode and just kept listening. Um, we've Nick uh, Costos, one of my old co-hosts on my own, on my old show. I was on his program ahead of WrestleMania and I did a WrestleMania pick segment. The number of you who mentioned that you heard me on there, listen to one episode and then keep listening. Those are the types of things that really matter to us. That's how we grow our audience. You know, we're not operating under some large umbrella, you know, podcast studio. We're not working this podcast under our individual big corporations that both of us happen to work for. This is independent. So it's word of mouth. Uh, I do my best on social media. I would love to get into, you know, YouTube and having a a podcast producer help put our clips up on there. I don't have that time. Do I have the skill? Maybe. I don't know. But I definitely don't have the time for it. So finding out that this is how you guys find us naturally, not being long-term listeners of mine or Chris's, perhaps from college football, the stuff that he does, Um, that's all it's meaningful. And it tells us that we're headed in the right direction. So getting reviews like that, getting those DMS and questions from you guys, um, it means a lot. We greatly appreciate it. I usually don't spend that much time in the uh, five-star review portion of this podcast, but I did want to say all of that. Let me also remind you to follow us on Twitter at getting overcast. Since I just mentioned that, uh, not only can you send us DMS and tweets with questions and comments for the show, but you get news analysis, highlights, episode drops, and all of that good stuff again on Twitter at getting overcast. Please also remember. I happen to love the number five and for five bucks a month, folks, or $50 for the entire year. You can become an official getting overhead. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up for one of the subscriptions. You're going to get news posts every week. Bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, five minute recaps of the four major shows during the week. And beyond that, your contributions directly support myself, the Silver King, and Vintage. Puts a little beer money in our pocket, a little meat money in our pocket. Allows us to go get some of those slabs of beef we like talking about so much on this podcast. All right, that is it uh, for the intro to the show, Chris. This is a very normal WWE episode. You know, usually we have a big headline we want to talk about off the top or some other type of topic or something crazy happened with the bloodline, but no bloodline on TV this week. Not much in the way of headlines outside of Edge. We're going to talk about that in the main event. So I just kind of want to get into the show, but I did find this funny. You know, we spent like 30 minutes last week reviewing one year of Triple H holding the book in WWE. In retrospect, had I known the way Raw was going to be booked Monday night, we could have just pointed to that show as a microcosm of his entire last 13 months in like three hours. We saw an elevated mid-card title, underused superstars historically that we like featured in prominent roles, Chad Gable, Tommaso Ciampa, Shinsuke Nakamura, Piper Niven, LA Knight, 
Wrestlers allowed to cut promos and speak in their native languages. Legitimate finishes to matches that otherwise could have been disqualifications. Show long storylines, not one, but two. And then three really shitty women segments, two of which were directly the fault of creative. I thought this morning about this, and I just kind of laughed to myself that literally everything we talked about last week all happened on Monday Night Raw, clearly for better or worse. And I promise we will get to the worst later in the show. Yep, it, it it was a continuation of what we've gotten a lot of along those lines as well. Tag team main event on Raw, once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a, a lot of continuing that. Ultimately, again, it's a lot better than it was before. Way better. A lot more positives and negatives, but there are some negatives. And I think those were, were highlighted on Raw and, and kind of SmackDown as, uh, as well. Yeah, this is what we said last week. Just because we point out some things that aren't going great in WWE does not mean we are losing sight of the fact that the last year of what we got in creative was eons better than the vast majority of what we had gotten for, I don't know, a decade prior. Like, And you know you, you can make an argument into when things really fell off a cliff with WWE, but there's no doubt that under Triple H, things are flowing more smoothly and there's purpose to everything that happens. And there's a lot less changes at the last minute. I, there's very few, I would say, changes that come at the last minute. There is a plan in place and it's being executed. Does that mean we're gonna love the plan? Not necessarily, but the fact that there is a plan at all is a huge step forward. And that is something that we enjoy. And I do wanna mention quickly before we get into the main event, uh, last week, this podcast, our, we only did two episodes, normal Tuesday show on WWE, the normal Thursday show, on AEW and NXT. It was our most downloaded week for just the two regular shows in the history of this podcast. And one of the big reasons, I'll do a little Barry Horowitz, even though that's not really the point of me saying this, was the CM Punk rant on the Thursday show. So if you only listen to our WWE episodes, but you are aware of all the CM Punk news that happened, I do suggest going back and listening to Thursday's show, even if it's just for that opening segment. But we do have some good chat on AEW and NXT there as well. And quickly, let me tell you about our schedule this week just before we get into it. Obviously, we're doing the WWE episode today. On Wednesday, we're going to have your NXT Heatwave review. Basically, it's a special show happening Tuesday night on USA Network. I'm going to try to watch the three big matches from New Japan G1 Climax and get them into the Wednesday show as well. TBD on if that happens. And then Thursday, Vintage Chris Vanini joins us for the second time this week for your AEW All-In Ultimate Preview. And of course, once that show goes off the air this weekend, he will join us again for an AEW All-In Instant Analysis. A ton of stuff still here to come this week on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, including your WWE episode, which begins right now the way it always does as we slide into the main event. And clearly, Chris, we are kicking off with Edge 25 years celebration. If it sounds weird the way I said that, it's because it is weird. That's how they promoted this Edge 25 years celebration, not anniversary, not a 25 year celebration. I just found that whole thing to be weird. But look, uh, there were highlight videos and congratulation promo clips. Superstars, young and old, were involved. This was throughout the entire episode of SmackDown on Friday. The main video was a career retrospective that was obviously exceptional because whenever WWE puts together something like that, it's always exceptional. The entrance was incredible, his entrance to the ring. And I'm not sure about you, Chris. I found it super emotional. Like 
way beyond the way I expected to feel for a normal entrance on a SmackDown on a random Friday night. Yeah, the the video was great. I, I, I loved, that was a great job of explaining Edge's place in history. You know, he's not the greatest of all time. What are, what are his defining mm-hmm. characteristics? Sometimes he can be a bit hard to define, an enigma, so uh, if you will. And that put it all in good context. I love the stories from the superstars backstage explaining things. I love the note from Cody, who said that after Edge retired, after his neck injury, he, I think, still went on the European tour just to, like, be around everybody and mm. help people. And, and that was really cool. Um, I, I thought that was uh, really well done. The entrance was, was great as well. It was I didn't I wasn't quite as emotional because of the question hanging over of everything. Is this the end or not? And the fact that they couldn't give an answer for that, just I couldn't connect to it as if I, I couldn't embrace it being the end because I knew it might not be the end. Right. So it was kind of a little bit weird. But I thought it did a good job of setting up where Edge is. And, and it is kind of in the history books. Where do you think that Royal Rumble entrance, the return, his initial return, ranks? Is that like top five ever in terms of a return? I think it is. In terms of return, like we count like return, someone was gone for a few months or return like someone who'd been gone for years. Uh, I mean, Uh, generally a a surprise return. It can be someone gone for nine months, like when Triple H and Undertaker did the back to back return when they were both injured like that counts. But I think just as a singular moment, that was extraordinary. Looking back on that, the Royal Rumble. Yes. It was everything we love about the Royal Rumble, everything we want about the, from the Royal Rumble, which is somebody coming we didn't expect. And it's somebody that we didn't think we'd ever see again, you know, right. someone who'd been gone for so long. So, like, for me, the greatest return entrance of all time is Triple H 2002. But it's incredible in terms of like yeah. surprises, surprises. This is probably top five. You know, like, and we, we can get into more edge in a bit. I mean, like the run that that has since followed, I'm kind of, I don't really care for it, but that moment, that moment was amazing and, and nothing takes away. Cause it, it wasn't just like the music and the surprise and the smoke and the visuals, but like when he walks out of that smoke and it's billowing behind him and his the look on his face of like, like, wow, this is really happening. Like I'm overwhelmed. Like you could, it seemed like him as a human being, not edge the character. It seemed like Adam Copeland was legitimately overwhelmed by that moment. You don't get that. You like, you don't get that kind of natural, like visceral reaction. And that's always going to stick with me. I I, I watched that twice, uh, once before and once after SmackDown on Friday. I know we're way ahead of like, we haven't talked about the match yet or anything. Um, but I've watched that twice again recently and I just get goosebumps every time. And he takes a, and he takes a couple extra seconds before he puts his hands up. Yeah, right. And he comes out there and he crouches, but he like takes it in for a couple more seconds, mm-hmm. and you can tell he's doing that. I, I I love that. All right, let's get to what happened. <laughs> SmackDown on Friday. I vamped enough. Uh, Edge against Sheamus. This was indeed the match, and it was indeed the main event. It began with more than twenty minutes left. 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 Will said, "We've all read the rumors. If this is it, tear down the house." Edge. We'll talk about that later. Edge got chance before and after the bell and credit to Mike Rome, who did a really good Tony Chimmel impersonation on the rated R superstar. Now, should they have brought in Tony Chimmel? 
yes, they should have. You know, did they try? Who knows? But look, Mike Rome, pretty good job. Credit to you. Uh, Edge hit a bottom rope springing back elbow and powerbomb Sheamus off the apron outside. Then he intercepted 10 beats, turning and beating Sheamus over the ropes before hitting a tope spear outside. Edge countered Sheamus into a cross face, then took him off the tippy top with a superplex moving into execution for a false finish. Fans chanted, you still got it, before Sheamus took Edge off the ropes with an avalanche white noise, followed by a Celtic cross and then 10 beats. Edge talked shit, so Sheamus did 20 more beats, getting major heat. Sheamus countered the spear with a massive pump knee and a bro kick for a 2.9 false finish. Edge avoided a second brogue and hit a spear for another 2.9 false finish. They got up and Edge hit another spear, draping both of his arms over Sheamus for the 1-2-3 in 20 minutes with a massive pyro celebration. Beth Phoenix was crying. Edge got a standing ovation. Then he hugged Sheamus and the show just ended. Uh, We found out later after the show, uh, Edge basically said, hey, look, I don't know if this is it, but this is almost definitely my last time in Toronto. And then I think something happened with Drew McIntyre and Kevin Owens came out for this dark match situation, and they ended up carrying Edge on their shoulders at the end of the show. Now, in terms of the match, I'm not exactly sure how you analyze perfection because this was it, perfection. I'm not saying it was a five-star match, but in terms of what we wanted and what we got, I thought it was perfection achieved. I don't know how you get much better than what they did in this main event. Now, in a moment, we can talk about what did not happen on SmackDown and what might happen going forward. But the lead up to Edge's 25th anniversary and this match, I just there's no criticisms here. I felt like it was a special moment. It delivered like it was a special moment. The match itself, Sheamus, what was it? Banger. It was a banger. It was one of Edge's best matches this entire run since he's come back. I went 4.25 stars in an A. I could see if anyone goes another quarter point higher, 4.5. That's how good it was. Chris, if this was Edge's final match, it was a hell of a final match and a great way to go out. Good match. Some really good kickouts. Some really good false finish kickouts. And also Edge had the Toronto Maple Leafs themed uh, wrestling Mm-hmm. Trunks, wrestling pants, which was cool uh, for anybody who noticed that. And yeah, I, I, I enjoyed everything. I just, like I said, I kind of came out of it feeling not, not empty, but not full because it was like, well, is this the end or not? I mean, it's it's the end for him in Toronto. Right. So cool for people from Toronto and, and maybe all of Canada. Uh, but I was just like, OK, cool. That was a great celebration. Will he be back? I I don't know. So, you know, it was a weird way to kind of go out. Just I don't like I don't know. I don't know if Edge is going to wait and see how he feels come WrestleMania season or if he's wants to if he's got to get something done. I'm not sure why the uncertainty Mm -hmm. um, for so long, because remember, it was what a year ago or so. He said he was going to come back to Toronto for his last match. And um, so I I, I don't know, really kind of have some questions about that. But the match was really good. Really fitting a good, nice celebration for for what Edge was. I'm not saying this was his retirement match, but let's not forget, and I know it's a little bit different, but let's not forget how The Undertaker went out. He went out in a cinematic match against AJ Styles, and then he showed up at a Survivor Series and waved. Now, granted, that was all during the pandemic, and it was Mm -hmm. a unique situation, but it's not like Undertaker had the biggest career send-off match and got to get serenaded by a bunch of fans. Edge got that. Edge went out seemingly 
the way he said he was going to a year ago, which is what you mentioned. Last time they were in Toronto, I think after the show went off the air, he grabbed the mic and said, hey, look, you know, this is my home. Um, I didn't get to go out on my terms the first time. But if I do get to go out on my terms this time, it'll be wrestling my final match here about a year from now, the next time WWE comes to Toronto. And that's what he did. And look, in the lead up to this, you know, I know everyone thinks like Christian is Edge's best friend just automatically. Edge said that Sheamus was his best friend. He got him back into wrestling, you know, and helped him decide to come back. They've grown closer clearly over the years. This was a really special moment. How often do you get to wrestle your best friend or one of your best friends in your hometown in front of your entire family, probably a bunch of friends? The the Toronto Maple Leafs did a ton of shit for him. He's a huge fan of the Maple Leafs and his gear looked incredible. He had a great match, an A match, and he got the win. Now, yeah, normally you put over younger talent on the way out. Sheamus isn't younger talent. You know, he doesn't need to get put over here. So that was totally fine. But to your point, now look, in terms of... Well, go ahead. let me let me jump on the yeah go for yeah. it uh, on, on the younger talent point. I we'll get into it, but one of Edge's legacies going forward for younger talent will be he created Judgment Day, and yeah. and, and and he hasn't obviously he hasn't gone back to that. But I do think that's important to note. Like the, his this whole current run, I haven't loved it. Not many great matches, a lot of boring stuff. But excuse me, excuse Judgment me. Day, point of order, and he gets credit for that. During this run, Edge had the greatest wrestling match of all time. How can you say it wasn't an incredible run? Not great matches. He literally had Look, the greatest wrestling match of all it time. Was, that was a lot better than that was a lot better than we thought it would be. <laughs> it was really good. It actually was really good. Um, but look, well, let's get back to that. We'll talk about his run at the end. In terms of what Cole referred to, Michael Cole, the rumors and what might lie ahead. You know, Edge and his trainer they shared ahead of SmackDown that this was the final match on his current WWE contract. And as you said, and as I just said. He previously stated he wanted to end his career in Toronto. You know, WWE did present this in a way that it could be his retirement, but without a promo from Edge, which we did not get on the show, or him taking the loss, clearly the door seems to be open for that not to be the case. Now, what I have heard is that while he does not have any matches left on his contract with WWE, his contract still extends through September, at least through a portion of September. The idea being that when he signed it, he wasn't sure when WWE was going to book the Toronto show. So he doesn't have any matches left, but he's still under contract with them. I have also heard internally that WWE has brought up an extension with him. I was told it was two years. Now, Edge said after the show in the arena that he's not sure about retirement. I mentioned this. He needs to talk it over with his family. It might have just been his last match in Toronto. Obviously, a lot of talk has been about AEW because Christian is over there and Dax Harwood is over there. And uh, Edge lives really close to Dax in North Carolina. In fact, I think they either they didn't use his home, but they mentioned him during that. Was it was it Seth Rollins that invaded Edge's house? Mm-hmm. Um, Beth mentioned calling Dax or, some, or Edge told her to call Dax or something like that during that segment. But nevertheless, the IWC has taken off on this idea that He's going to appear at All In this weekend because now he's done with WWE and he wants to wrestle or team with Christian one last time. And look, is Edge and Christian versus FTR? I should say Adam Copeland and Christian against FTR. Is that enticing given how close all of them are? Yeah, it definitely is. But historically, Edge has been super loyal to WWE. 
And even when Tony Khan gave him that offer to return, he went to WWE and said, this is what I'm being offered. Just give me more money. I'll come back. And they gave him more money and he came back. So for me, him going to AEW at all would be a surprise, but especially to show up at All In just nine days after his last WWE match. Again, I'm told he's still under contract, but even if he wasn't, I don't think he would like kick up dust in WWE's face after a three-year run by just showing up at All In. Anything is possible. And if Tony Khan wants to drop a couple mil on his head, then I'm sure he would do it because who wouldn't for a couple mil? But I'm just not sure it makes a lot of sense. And there's really nothing with Christian that's going on right now that makes a lot of sense for him to jump into. But back to the more realistic conversation here. While that was an incredible moment on SmackDown, it did not feel like a retirement match, especially since they didn't bake in time at the end for this big farewell after the bell, which really they probably should have done either way, but they didn't. That was really my only disappointment with it. But he did fight his best friend in that match, his hometown, his family, his friends. And really the best way for Edge to go out would be if WWE did like a premium live event in the Rogers Center, which is the stadium in Toronto next year. He gets into a career versus title match or something like that. He loses and puts over a younger talent. So Chris, I'm going to wrap it up like this and then we'll talk about his return his last three years in a minute. But if I had to put odds on it, I would honestly say 5% chance he goes to AEW, 25% chance he retires, 70% chance he returns to WWE, because even if he doesn't plan to, there's always that blood money in the bank check that can come in a couple of years. Yeah, the all-in stuff makes no sense at all. And, yeah. and you even mentioned the contract situation, but like this isn't a John Moxley situation where like the guy wanted out and AEW wasn't even exactly a company yet. Right. AEW is fully established. I, I can't see any of that happening. Um, but if, if he did go over to AEW, like the natural thing to me wouldn't be FTR. It would be Edge and Christian and the Hardy Boys, you know? Like, sure. It, it, I'm not saying that would be a good match, but <laughs> that's where the history is. And it was, it was unfortunate to not have Christian there as a part of this celebration. I mean, he was in so many clips of the video as well, obviously. Right. Another Canadian um, and, and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, D- Dustin wasn't in the Cody doc. It's just, it, it's the reality of what, where things are now. And so we'll see. But you're right. That was the biggest part to me was the end. It was like, we didn't get the edge farewell promo, like stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing he still pops up somewhere and does something. What it is, I don't know. Yeah. But that's what I mean when it didn't feel like a farewell. Even even when Cole is referring to the rumors that this could be his last match or not. Like, either it is or it isn't. Right, you know? right. And it didn't feel like it was. Yeah, I mean, I could see it being as simple as Edge is like, look, I'm not going to keep doing this for years on, on end here, but I'll sign a six-month deal. I'll return at the Royal Rumble for the third time, and I'll do a WrestleMania match, and I'll go out at WrestleMania 40. And by the way, I believe Christian Cage's contract with AEW expires in March. It would be pretty interesting given there's a whole bunch of fervor over whether Christian will ever be in the WWE Hall of Fame. It'd be very interesting if he lets that expire, takes, let's say, three months, gets inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame with with Edge as Edge and Christian, the tag team, mm-hmm. or perhaps even individually, it's WrestleMania 40 weekend and then just resigns, you know, with AEW in, in a few months after that or or doesn't and just calls it a career at that point. Who knows? But 
I think it's just as likely. I, I, I think it's even more likely that we get Edge and Christian together in WWE than we get Edge and Christian in AEW. Yeah, well, I mean, what would you call him in AEW? Adam Copeland and Christian Cage, I guess. There's mixed on whether Edge has the rights to his name or not. I'm not totally sure, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, but okay, let's wrap this up with just a quick look at his three-year run in WWE, which unfortunately saw a lot of its luster, I guess, taken out by the pandemic. A lot of matches that he would have had in front of big crowds that hopefully would have drawn tickets and people and, and interest were instead done in front of nobody, right? I think if we were to grade this run, I would probably just give it a flat B because it did have its highs, right? Uh, the Royal Rumble returned the initial one, obviously. He main evented WrestleMania with Roman Reigns and Daniel Bryan. Let's not forget. And that was a, a great match and a pretty damn good feud leading into it from a storytelling perspective. He did have the greatest wrestling match ever with Randy Orton, which was a damn good match, even if it wasn't the greatest ever. And he's had some other, you know, major highlights during this run. The Finn Balor um, I think it was the I quit match in particular was damn good. And even the Hell in a Cell match was good, even if the wrong person won it. But it just felt like he was only in like four feuds over three years and they all lasted too long. And the Balor one did not end the way it should, which would have been Balor beating him. It made no sense for Edge to win that. You know, it was a really solid run. It just never really hit a peak where you would say, this was incredible. What a stretch. Um, I think Edge came back, accomplished what he wanted to accomplish, and more than anything, went out on his own terms. I should also mention the fact that he got to wrestle with Beth Phoenix. That was really cool, too. But that was it. You know, I don't think it was exemplary. But was it great? Yes. Was I happy that he came back? Yes. And do I think he's happy with the work he put in over the last three years? I absolutely do. It, um, it's largely forgettable to me but so like so he has an amazing return we love it that's great then he has the wrestlemania match with randy orton which is horrible just horrible and goes on and, and does some other stuff wins the rumble has that really good feud with him and roman dana bryan gets thrown into the mix and i will always wonder if part of edge coming back or part of edge winning the rumble was that he was supposed to win the title at some point. And mm. I'll always wonder if plans change. Like, I don't think when Roman won the title, they were thinking a thousand day reign, you know, at that point. So I'll always wonder if Edge was supposed to win, change their mind. I I, I don't know. Because Edge, Edge was obviously really hot at that time and he wanted to come back and win the title. It was what? Wasn't that match like seven years to the day that he gave up the title? Something, or something like, like that. that. Yeah. So like th th there, there was a real good storyline there he he, ended, he never got back you know like he he came back he wanted to get back to that top spot he never actually got there the feuds were not enough and too long you know when edge came i said this when edge came back i was like i want to see him i want to do one month feuds with so many different people on the roster mm -hmm. like when you when you get these legends back for a period of time get them in with as many people as possible and they never do that like Brock, Brock was the same way for a long time too. You know, he basically do Undertaker, do Roman. It would go on forever. We wouldn't get much else. You got a Samoa Joe, a Dan O'Brien, a Finn Balor in there. But I wanted to see Edge with everybody. We didn't really get that. 
and nothing really stood out. But I do think Judgment Day is a an absolute uh, high point on his resume. Well, even if it, it wasn't with him. He left. It was a low point with him. Well, Without him, it's a high point. Sort, but like it started with him, and in the turning on edge is what kicked it up a notch. And that doesn't happen if he's not there in the in the, in the first place. So mm. like you clearly saw, hey, I want to work with Damian Priest, I want to work with Rhea Ripley. It didn't necessarily happen with him, but it worked. And so I think that's part of that too. Overall, Edge's legacy is a strange one because he's not one of the greatest of all time. He he he's not he it's not like a guy like, oh man, it's an edge match. I can't wait to watch an edge match. He's always been a guy who's about moments. The the TLC matches, the Jeff Hardy spear, the live sex thing with Lita, the cash in, uh, the entrance, the, his first retirement. That's kind of what's defined him moments rather than mm-hmm. feuds and other things. Now, I, I, I know he had a great thing going with Cena. I was kind of out during that period, so I, I didn't experience it live. But Edge has been a moments guy. And. I don't feel like he's had a ton of moments in this in this maybe final run. Well, don't forget also, he tore his triceps at Backlash. I think it was in 2020, that match, uh, the yeah. greatest wrestling match ever with Randy Orton. He tore his triceps in there. That delayed the end of that. I think he hurt his MCL at some point. There may have been a shoulder injury in there. So, I mean, the guy's he's older. He's, he's almost 50 or he's at 50, whatever the case He's in a, a part of his career where, you know, they picked opponents for him. Like, I'm not I'm not defending the fact that he was in so few feuds and and the way some of those were booked. But they probably said, hey, look, let's pick like four people that this guy can go with. And it's safe wrestling and they can work a lot of matches. So they're really comfortable with each other so that these things don't continue to happen. But again, it happened in a taped match with Randy Orton, you know, where he tore his triceps. So um, I, I think. It's been an uh, again a B return. I think is the, is my grade for it. If I was if I was asked to do something like that, just because it was solid across the board, not really spectacular at any one part, but I do think a lot was accomplished, and it was better for him to be back than not be back. But what you said at the end there, and it's not to denigrate Edge, it's just it's the truth. He's not a Mount Rushmore guy. He's not a top tier guy. He's that second tier of stars. And, and the second tier is filled with really big name stars. Do not get me wrong, but he's just not one of those top top. He's not John Cena. He's not the rock. He's not Stone Cold Steve Austin. So when someone like that returns, the ceiling is only so high. Do I think he reached his ceiling? No. Um, but given his age, given the injuries and given some of the other hiccups and obstacles and a certain person booking the first, you know, two and a half years of that run and then Triple H getting his hands on it, Again, I've mentioned it twice already. Balor should have beat him at Hell in a Cell. It made all the sense in the world for him to win that match. That, to me, was the low part other than Judgment Day just because it made so much sense for Balor to win that match. But we still got two really good matches between him and Balor. So mm-hmm. there's not much to complain about. I thought it was a successful return. And in terms of what happens in the future, Chris, we will find out what Edge decides and perhaps what yeah. WWE decides to do with him. One last thing. One last thing I think kind of sums up the whole Edge thing. They have a 25th anniversary Edge signature championship belt. 
that is on the WWE shop mm-hmm. that they showed it to him. There's a clip on social media. What it is, it's a it's a blue and blue and white intercontinental championship belt, the Attitude Era intercontinental belt. I know he's a multi-time, many-time world champion, but I think that kind of sums it up. Yeah, that the 25th anniversary ed, Edge belt is an IC belt, and that's not a bad place to be. Hall of Famer, undoubtedly, great career, one of the best tag team, one of the best tag teams of all time. Uh, but I think that about kind of sums in terms of where he is on a tier. Not not one of those great world champions, but one of those amazing IC champs. Yeah, he's look, he's Razor Ramon Scott Hall in that kind of category, right? You remember him yeah. as a top mid Carter, but an upper mid Carter who could be in any main event at any given time. Now, the difference obviously is that Edge won world titles in WWE and Scott Hall did not. Edge Razor Ramon, I'm sorry, did not. Um, but it's that same kind of category where it's like a legend, a hall of fame, a hall of fame, a hall just not the top tier. And that's okay. There's really nothing at all wrong with that. Not everyone can be Michael Jordan. It's just, that's not how it goes, right? You have to have people who are at those other levels, but a great career, if that's the end, a great three-year return with a number of fantastic matches and and interesting, good storylines and promos, by the way. We forgot to even mention, maybe the best part of Edge coming back all these years, some of those promos he cut were promo of the year contenders year after year after year. So, he was great on the mic during this run, with the exception of the Judgment Day part, which didn't work for Edge. But as we have seen, especially over the last year, Judgment Day is off and running since he was kicked out of the group by, you know, the people that were there, Finn Balor included. Speaking of that, Chris, let's move to the second half of our main event, which happens to involve Judgment Day. So Sami Zayn appropriately opened Raw in Quebec City, which for those who don't know is about two and a half hours from Montreal. Huge ovation, waved a Quebec flag, ran around the ring, spoke a bunch of French, whole nine yards. I say whole nine yards because it lasted nine minutes. What a freaking pop for him. The crowd was electric the whole night, a night and day difference from last week. Judgment Day in full interrupted him. Rhea Ripley had an awesome Monday night mommy shirt that had basically the Raw logo in purple. The heels surrounded the ring shield style only for Kevin Owens to make his triumphant return. They quickly cleared the ring. The crowd went wild with a Kevin Owens type of chant. Uh, KO then challenged any two Judgment Day members and yelled in French, tonight, we're going to kick your fucking asses. The crowd went wild, obviously, when he said that. In any other city, Chris, any other city, maybe except for Montreal, I'd have told you that this was a stale, repetitive opening segment leading to another stale, repetitive match that we've seen some version of in every main event on Raw for like the last three months, except despite basically nothing happening in 16 minutes to open Raw, it was incredible. That's how you play to a crowd, man. And if you're going to do it, you do it to open the show and set the tone for the rest of the three hours. We just need to get away from this entire feud once payback is done because it's getting me a little bit crazy right now. It uh, it was it was great. It just dragged a little bit. It went on a bit too long. Montreal was different because it was Montreal's hometown and he was in a world title feud about to fight for the world title. This there's there's just nothing really going on. So I, I didn't need nine minutes of, uh, of, of that, but it was great. And then I love using a native language to pop the crowd and and figuring out later on what what it meant. Yeah. So that was great. Ultimately, the crowd being super into it got me into it. Um, otherwise, then then I would have been otherwise. And most notably, Kevin Owens was back to to Russell. Yeah, and, and that was the biggest takeaway for me. 
He also looked good on top of that, I should note. Um, what's interesting about WWE and USA Network, you cannot curse in English, but you can curse, curse in French, Spanish, Japanese. And then as soon as Raw ends, they're airing that Killing It show, which is on Peacock. It streamed last year. They just started season two. Once Raw ended, if you waited 60 seconds, you heard the word fuck four times. So you can say it in any other language except English on the show, and you can say it as soon as Raw goes off the air. But heaven forbid you say shit or the crowd chants holy shit in English on Raw. We got to bleep the show, the show for 30 seconds. Ridiculous. Um, I got to thinking coming out of this just before we continue with the segment. Is Sami Zayn the biggest Canadian wrestling star since Bret Hart? Like, think about the other big names. Chris Benoit, uh, Kenny Omega, Chris Jericho, Kevin Owens, Edge, Christian. Is there anyone else since Bret who has drawn reactions this big, specifically from Canadian fans as Sami Zayn? I actually think it might be him unless there is someone I am completely forgetting about. Well, it, it, it depends. He's not, he's not the biggest star. Edge was a bigger star, but and the other part of this is the French Canadian specific part of that. True. It's a very different part of Canada for anybody who's been up there. There, there is very much a um, larger sense of pride specifically to French uh, Canada. Sammy made his main roster debut there when he did. Bret Hart introduced him against John Cena, where he separated his shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he hurt his shoulder entering the ring. So, in terms of crowd reactions, I think you got to say yes. I mean, what we got at Elimination Chamber was Histor almost like nothing. We've yeah, it's historic. Yeah, it, was, it was amazing. But I don't think, but but I don't think the Sammy. But he's not getting that in Winnipeg. You know, I I, I think True. it's specific to Quebec. I think he did get a big reaction in Winnipeg, but not the same reaction he's getting in Montreal and Quebec for sure. Quebec City, I should say. Um, but okay, fair enough. I'm curious. Maybe maybe I'm like not thinking about it correctly, but the pops that he's getting, I don't remember hearing Canadian pops for Canadian wrestlers of that level since Bret Hart. That's really what I'm trying to say. Anyway, uh, so that ended. We had J.D. McDonough backstage. He said, I'm not trying to be a wedge driver in Judgment Day. Just been close to Finn Balor for decades. Balor's like my older brother. Finn began sticking up for him as well. Ripley came in and said, hey, we need to decide who's going to fight Sammy and KO in the main event. She prevented JD from coming with them, again saying, Judgment Day business only. I could be wrong, but in the opening segment, it seemed like Balor and Priest were the ones stepping forward saying, we want to wrestle you. So I'm not exactly sure what needed to be discussed to that end that necessitated her coming in and doing that, but it was a nice building block promo. Then later in the Judgment Day locker room, Balor and Priest both wanted to team with Dominic Mysterio. Ripley criticized them for still having beef with each other, saying they need to figure it out before she gets back or she will decide. So Ripley returned from her match. We'll talk about that later. Balor was gone. Priest said they did not work it out. So Ripley's like, all right, I'm just going to decide for you. Then during the Judgment Day entrance, Priest walked out and Ripley like dragged Balor like he was a little kid, like not wanting to go in the car. She dragged him out into the entrance to be by Priest's side. I should also mention before we get to the match that earlier in the show, Cody Rhodes was backstage pissed about Balor uh, posing when he was sitting on his chest flexing last week. He called McDonough out for looking like a Funko Pop 
For anyone who does not know, that's a long time joke on social media because <laughs> his head is huge and his body's really small. Uh, Cody didn't, <laughs> I didn't like, think, uh, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, Cody didn't like the promo uh, that it was happening backstage. So he took Byron Saxon and the camera all the way backstage through gorilla position out to the crowd. Then he randomly put over Michael Cole and Wade Barrett. He got the fans pumped up saying, you guys are going to be the third man in the corner of Sammy and KO, and they're going to need your help against Judgment Day that always has the numbers advantage. And Cody also said, I'm going to be watching backstage as well. It just felt like this was the most telegraphed six-man main event. You literally have Cody going out there saying, I'm going to be watching the monitor. Don't do anything crazy. So like you knew he was going to come out and there was going to be a six-man match. I appreciated, Chris, on one hand, that we got another show-long storyline, but it just felt like, I said this earlier, it felt like it was repetitive, somewhat unnecessary. I, I didn't think this fit together as nicely as it has in prior weeks, and the whole can they get along thing within the Judgment Day, it isn't progressing to a level where I need to keep asking that question every week. I looked this up and I, I counted it. Five of the last 10... And four of the last seven raw main events are Judgment Day tag team matches. Mm-hmm. And there was a Cody versus Dominic match in there as well. I'm I'm just tired of this, man. I am tired of six-man tags or tag matches with no stakes. You know, a couple one or two times I think the tag team titles were on the line, but like, all right, man, like this is house show main event stuff, and we've gotten it for like two plus months. Yeah. It, crowd crowd cheers or whatever and it's perfectly entertaining wrestling but i want stakes i want some more story and the story's just kind of been dragging for a while um we'll get to something else there was something else on raw i thought should have been the main event but i get putting sammy and ko in the main event in quebec city right fine but just i'm tired of this. i'm tired i love judgment day i love all these people i'm just tired of doing the same thing every week for the main event on raw it made sense to do this match in this spot. The problem was similar versions of it have happened so many times before that it didn't feel unique, even though the crowd somewhat made it unique just because of how over KO and Sammy are there. But I'm going to talk about that a lot more later because I have some takes on that. So KO and Sammy, Judgment Day, non-title match in the main event. Uh, Owens ran right through Judgment Day early, hitting a swanton bomb on Balor. Priest tried to give Balor the money in the bank briefcase like 30 seconds later. He failed. So McDonough showed up and threw the briefcase in the ring. Owens caught it and drilled Balor in the head in clear view of the referee for disqualification. There was still 23 minutes of TV left. So Judgment Day beats them down three on two. Cody runs out now wearing full gear, smacks Dominic with the weight belt, demands a six-man match. Pierce comes out, makes it official off mic. So then we get the six-man the second time this exact face trio teamed together and the third time Cody has fought Judgment Day in a six-man since June 19th. Ripley caught Owens for a body slam outside with the referee distracted. Sammy appropriately got the late hot tag. Ripley tripped him with Priest hitting south of heaven for a broken fall. Cody came back with a disaster kick and a double Cody cutter to Dom for a broken fall. He caught Balor and Dom for crossroads with the Canadians tagging in for a Haluva kick and a stunner on Dom for the win. Dominic sold his ass off here, by the way, especially on the kick and the stunner. It's impressive because... He's almost the opposite of his father's character. Like he's a chicken shit. He's not an underdog. He's regular sized, all that deal. Yet he's continuously improving in so many different ways on a weekly basis. Sammy after the bell, I think he said something. It was in French saying like, 
we're the champions not only of WWE, but Canada and Quebec or something like that. He said it in French. He got one more pop. But this was a pure combination. And you kind of said this earlier of like dark match house show booking and attitude era booking. Not that there's anything wrong with that necessarily. It just didn't exactly advance anything or accomplish much other than fan service. In a vacuum, it's fine. But two weeks out from a premium live event, I was just left wanting a lot more. Right now, there may be plans for a tag team title match. There may be plans for Rhodes and Balor. It seems like that's where we're going. But none of these guys are currently booked for the show. The former of those matches would be repetitive. I think they've already defended the title at least once, if not twice, against Judgment Day. And the latter, Rhodes Balor, if that happens, only has minimal build despite next week being the go-home show and there being a lot of history between Finn and Cody and Bullet Club that you could utilize, but they're not doing any of it. So for me, it just felt like wheels spinning in place more than anything else. And I got to say, Chris, Balor, we've said it before, but he really needed the world heavyweight title to freshen up what they're doing here. Like Judgment Day, they're still Mm -hmm. entertaining overall but they just feel stuck in the mud creatively. It's the same Balor priest angst each week with no real developments, extremely similar four or six man tag team main events, as you mentioned, with a very short rotating cast of other challengers. You'll get Seth Rollins, you'll get Cody Rhodes, you'll get Matt Riddle, you know, all mixed in here. I think Judgment Day has been in the main event of Raw for like 12 or 14 straight weeks, and they lose 85% of those matches and almost never come out on top. It's okay for a heel group to be like this and be on the losing side frequently, but they have to win sometimes, and no one is winning regularly. Not even Ripley, because she's not doing anything in the ring. She's almost serving as a manager, and every week, it's a similar show-long storyline with them. It's almost like they're trying to do with Judgment Day what they did with Bloodline, except Judgment Day does not have the depth and the story to carry the show. I Again, I continue to like Judgment Day a lot. They're just not as captivating comparatively, primarily because nothing seems to actually be moving forward. It would be like Bloodline without Reigns for three months. There's no Reigns in this group. That's not to shit on Balor or Ripley, but they're not being built up in that way. And then you have McDonough, who's coming in as this like wedge driver character, but he's not compelling enough. He doesn't have enough charisma to be a change maker for the group. And they're not even advancing the story with him. It's been the same thing for the last three or four weeks. He's around, he speaks monotone, and nothing ultimately happens. So let me wrap on this. None of it was bad Monday. I just didn't find it that exciting. I think back to that perfect Raw that we got after SummerSlam, and I can't help but want more from the product over the last three weeks. The first two hours flew by. Hour three seemed to drag on forever. That had not been a problem recently. Again, I just see them spending this much time on a group and this much time on Cody, and they do it every week on a three-hour show, yet none of them are booked for matches on Payback in 11 days, a show that right. does not have the bloodline on it. How does that make sense? That, that that's, the, that's the problem. That's the problem. Like I'm Emphasizing Cody and Judgment Day and Sammy and KO and Seth Rollins, like, that's we want that. Those yes. are all the stars of Raw. Those are the people who should be carrying Raw. That's great. The problem is, of all those people, only Rhea and Seth have matches booked for Payback. 
and the go home is next week. Mm -hmm. There's no Cody. There's no Sammy and KO. There's nobody else. from. There's none of the men from Judgment Day. So we've just we've been doing it for several weeks post SummerSlam without any clear end point coming. Now, I assume we'll get that next week. And maybe the injuries to Sammy and KO have absolutely put yeah. everything on pause, but it's they're doing everything right on paper in terms of who they're emphasizing and highlighting. It's great. There's just no stakes to it right now because I don't know if they know what the end point is. That's the problem. That's exactly right. It's like what we said about the women's tag team title situation and Trish Stratus and Lita and, and more so Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler. There are extenuating circumstances that get in the way of creative. Totally understand it. But this was a week where you can say, okay, clearly Kevin Owens is cleared. He's back. Clearly we're building to payback. You are in a situation where you have a big hometown type of pop ahead for KO to make his return, which they accomplished. And Sammy use this show to build at least one, if not both of what you would expect to be matches featuring people from this faction on your next premium live event. Instead, it's like they copied and pasted Raw from the last couple of weeks, changed things around, and then said, oh, plus let's add in KO. And this week it's Cody instead of Seth. Like, it's just not fresh enough on a weekly basis to continue going back to the well with the exact same thing. Also, you have to remember in the Attitude Era, when they did stuff like this, and they did it all the time, okay? The number of mm -hmm. Stone Cold Steve Austin six-man main events or tag team main events that became six-man main events that and the number of Raws that ended with Austin stunning McMahon um, or, you know, Mankind getting involved in doing something. Like, it was repetitive shit too. Don't get me wrong. But the story each week was at least a little bit different. Here, it just feels like the wheels are spinning in place and not much is progressing. And like you said, maybe some of it's stalling on purpose. And I can accept that. But next week is the go-home show. And then coming out of payback, they have a pretty short build. I think it's to Fastlane is maybe the next show after that. Um, mm -hmm. This can't continue. I, I We cannot keep getting Judgment Day tag team six-man main events or even KO and Sammy tag team six-man events. You got to freshen up the card and you got to freshen up the third hour, especially with the NFL coming. There's no question about that. All right, that was a lot of time spent on Edge and... Edge's former faction, Judgment Day. Let's continue with everything else that happened across SmackDown and Raw this week. You know it, you love it. It is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez, I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some... Jordan. It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in them articles that I read. All right, let's start with what I'm guessing, Chris, you thought should have ended Raw on Monday night. Gunther against Chad Gable with the Intercontinental Championship on the line. Gunther got a pre-match promo in a stark white room talking about building his legacy. He said he respects Gable, but won't let him build a name off him. Gable in gorilla position got put over by Otis and Maxine Dupree as motivation before the match. Gunther dominated and taunted and then dominated and taunted over and over again. Uh, Gable powered out of two sleepers, the second with a belly-to-back suplex bridge, a dragon screw, and an ankle lock. He chopped him back, hit a great deadlift German suplex bridge. Gunther pushed Gable off the top rope outside into the barricade and chopped him straight to hell with one of the best 
camera shots that WWE's given us this entire year. It was the, right behind him. You saw the chop. Gable almost died. It was perfect. Uh, Gable then ducked a chop with Gunther hitting the ring post. Then Gable grabbed him on the rebound and German suplexed Gunther over the barricade into the timekeeper's area, running into the ring to win via countout. This, despite it being a title match, obviously, and the strap does not change via countout, but it was still immensely notable. Gable is just the fourth man to defeat Gunther in WWE singles competition ever. Seth Rollins won via DQ. Ilya Dragunov beat him for the NXT UK title. And then Braun Breaker beat him in NXT when Gunther got called up to the main roster. This was also his first singles loss since that one to Breaker in 16 months. Maybe, Chris, the best use of a countout that WWE has put together in a long, long time. Despite it being a non-result of a title match, this is still a really big deal for Gable. And it was a tremendous finish with the German suplex. Don't get it twisted. That shit was dangerous. Gunther came really close to landing on his head. This was exceptional. 4.25 stars and an A. And the best news is that we're getting Gunther and Gable, presumably at payback in a rematch. That's some alliteration for you right there. So a singles title match for Gable, presumably on a PLE, right before Gunther breaks the record. I love it. You know what I'd love even more? A 30-minute Ironman match on that show. It would fit in great with their two time-based match finishes that we've already gotten. This was an obvious, obvious good on Monday night. This should have been the main event of Raw. Yeah, I figured I that's where you're going. It wasn't because of being in Quebec, but an Intercontinental Championship match, trying to break this streak and having that type of finish, like it would have been a great way to end the show, just mm-hmm. in, in total. I like the beginning. I like the, the backstage promos from Alpha Academy, recounting how they came together. Otis saying, I was at my low point. You came in and helped me, and, and, and we became tag team champs. Like inst- They didn't put together a vignette package for this. Maybe they do if they do a rematch. But it was a great way to like catch you all up on why Chad Gable matters, how they got here, and a reason for you to care going into this match. Match was obviously great, like you did. I like that they didn't go overboard with, Chad Gable won, Chad Gable won, he beat Guther, he beat Guther, and then like, oh, wait, he's not going to be an Intercontinental Champion. Everybody knew the way he won, he wasn't going to be an mm-hmm. Intercontinental Champion. You could celebrate it, but also know that this probably wasn't the end of it. So I actually thought they found a really good balance there, which is really tough to do. I had a couple other thoughts. One, this doesn't really put an asterisk on Guther's reign, but it kind of sort of does, mm. right? I don't think so. I mean, we, we've we've had dusty finishes and stuff like that for other title reigns. I just I just kept he's lost. I mean, that. he's I already tag, lost. Lose the belt or anything like he's already lost two six man tag team matches. It, that, that doesn't count. It's not a singles match. I know it's a countdown. I don't though. know. I just I mean, it was it, it was a very creative way to to do it either way. Um, also, you got to bring in Honky Tonk Man mm. soon, right? Do you? Do you? I don't know. Like you're you're hyping up the streak. Tell us the story of Honky Tonk Man's streak. You know, I heard he was. Someone said he was there at SummerSlam or something. Um, I don't know if there was uh, conventions or what going on, but um, bring him in, have him 
beat up the honky talk man or something like that. Just do something to add to it. Like if you really, if this is going to be the longest intercontinental reign of all time, put like a real stamp on it. And I don't feel like we've gotten that yet. It's just been a lot of Gunther winning. There haven't been like amazing feuds and stuff like that or, or, or whatever. Like what is, you know, what, what's the moment we're going to remember? Beat up honky talk man as you take his record. I think, I think that's something <laughs> they should really do. You know he's seventy. I mean, I don't think he's gonna. <laughs> I, I don't mean like power bomb him. I mean just like I don't know, shove him into chop the him, turnbuckle, just, just chop him one time, get, stop his heart, get in his, something get, like that, get in his face, yeah, like lightly <laughs> chop him once, or just or just like have all of Imperium surround him, and, and maybe Gable makes a save or something like that, like just like they, they meant. I mean, they mentioned it on air. Honky Dog Man's a record. And he's really close to it. So like, give us. Give us some real history, like truly take that torch. Yes, yes. Like almost literally from the hockey talk, man. I, I think that's something they should try to do. I, with, I do agree uh, that next week on Prince. Raw, we should see like some type of countdown, a video package, mm-hmm. you know, comparing the two reigns, uh, maybe even showing a top five list and how Gunther, like every, like certain key milestones in his reign moved him up parts of the list. You know, here's where he passed Macho Man. Here's where he pass to this person. I do agree that they're not doing a great job um, visualizing it for the crowd or allowing the crowd to visualize it because he's been champion for so long. At the same time, it has been a great reign and I don't know that it needs to be spoon fed that much, but to your point, they kind of did spoon feed us with Roman Reigns hitting a thousand. He's not even breaking the record. Uh, You know, Gunther is breaking the record. Like it's going to happen. And I guess the question now is who ultimately he loses the title to and whether it is Gable, because just as an example, right, what have we gotten so far? A beat the clock challenge that Gable survived. Now a title match that Gable won, obviously via count out. If they go and let's say they actually do give us a 30 minute Ironman match at payback, that can end 1-1 or 2-2 or, you know, whatever the case might be. So then he retains the title, sets the record. You come into Raw that Monday night. I believe if my math is correct, he has the record now. You go into that Raw, Gable could beat him for the title two days later in like the third rematch and you get a best of both worlds scenario. But I guess the the big point coming out of this is no matter what they do with Honky Tonk Man, the rebuild of Chad Gable in a very short period of time. I mean, it started with Alpha Academy gaining more prominence and Gable being able to show out in those tag team matches. But the fact that this guy is in a comedy gimmick with Otis and Maxine Dupree and is being presented as not a legitimate challenger for Gunther, but perhaps the guy who takes down Gunther and ends this reign, it is immensely impressive because this, Chris, is what I've talked about. I talk about it with the men's tag teams. I talk about it with the women's tag teams. There is no reason whatsoever why in any given week, month, or period of time leading into a big show, you cannot take individual people from tag teams and spotlight them and keep the tag team together. We saw it with Montez Ford going into Elimination Chamber. We're seeing it now with Chad Gable going into Payback and perhaps maybe even winning the Intercontinental Championship. I mean, they're telling the story of this guy who's been in WWE for a decade and has never won a singles title at any point, not SmackDown, not Raw, and obviously not NXT. And by the way, he didn't even win the King of the Ring when we thought he might win the King of the Ring. So they are rebuilding Chad Gable 
in front of our eyes. We've been asking for this forever and it's happening. And I don't want that appreciation to be overlooked or I don't want that um, effort, I should say, to be overlooked. I want to give it the appreciation it deserves because Gable is finally starting to get his just due. Yeah, no, it, it, it's absolutely credit to him and the work he's done. And clearly the company is behind him. Again, this is part of the Triple H era. You can tell when there's a fan favorite and the company's getting behind him. Mm-hmm. Happened with LA Knight, happening here. Want to jump back to Honky Talk Man real quick. I just looked. You up. just want this guy to get his ass kicked. He actually, clearly, I, I mean, I didn't realize this. Yeah. No, he, Honky Talk Man, frequently, deliberately got himself counted out or disqualified. He did. To lose, but keep the title. So mm-hmm. I, I guess I'll, I'll retract what I said about Aguther and Asterix and all that, even though they're just, they're different kinds of heels. And look, ultimately, what is the most memorable part of Honky Talk Man's run? It was a really good run, a long feud with Randy Savage and, and stuff like that. But the most memorable moment of the feud is when he lost it, you know, when Ultimate Warrior beat him for the title. So when that happens, whoever that is, if it's Gable, if it's somebody else, They'll have to make sure that that is a moment, one that maybe Gunther hasn't had a ton of on this run. I, you know, it's still amazing to me. Like, I don't think Gable's going to be the one to beat Gunther. But if he is, me neither. I mean, holy shit, that would be, it'd be incredible. I mean, it would be such a shock, you know, for it to be Gable out of everyone. But man, it would be sick if they actually did it. All right, let's keep going. A lot more happened. Uh, Shinsuke Nakamura got a promo package in Japanese with subtitles. He was wearing a gi and explaining what he whispered to Seth Rollins. He said Rollins is confident and charismatic, but he knows his weakness, a back injury that Rollins is in constant pain because of. Nakamura said that he can break him once and for all and will do exactly that. Then he explained the Japanese tattoo on Rollins' back is one that they both live by, but he didn't say what it meant. I thought that was kind of weird. Uh, Shinsuke said he won't be satisfied until he takes Seth's title and breaks him once and for all, closing with, watch your back, which was just a very funny line. I know to some, this was just a simple promo, but as someone who loved Nakamura in NXT and was furious with how he was presented on the main roster under Vince McMahon from a character perspective, Chris, I cannot tell you how happy I was just seeing this on Monday night. I have been waiting six years for them to let Shinsuke cut a promo like anyone else on the roster in his own language. Would I have loved a little bit more detail about how Nakamura knew about the injury or this code that they both live by that's written in Japanese on Seth's back? Absolutely. Please explain that to me. But like I said, I waited more than half a decade for them to allow this guy to do it, and he knocked it out of the damn park. Beyond the fact that he knocked the promo out of the park, he was super menacing He felt cold and calculated, almost like Yakuza boss vibes coming from Shinsuke. This shit was awesome. I'm happy. I'm pumped is what I am. And it was good. This was the coolest Shinsuke has ever looked in WWE. I I know his NXT run was good and everything and stuff like that. Like he's had great entrances, but just this was incredible. This was everything we've wanted out of Shinsuke Nakamura. Just like a guy who's confident and kind of in, in, in dark and evil, but not in a bombastic kind of way. It, it was like, I love, and I love the twist. Seth Rollins has an injured back. Well, that came out. Like, that's such like an old school mm-hmm. style of feud to bring back. Oh, turns out somebody's got an injury that we've never talked about before. And now that's the basis of our feud. All right, cool. I'm fine with it. They sold me on it. Seth Rollins is 
every every time he wins, he's dealing with it. Every time he hugs his kid, he's dealing with it. It's like, oh damn, like Shinsuke really knows the weakness here and, and he's he's going for it. And it kind of reminded me of the, the, his like speaking style and the way he looked. It kind of reminded me of Mickey Rourke in Iron Man 2 mm-hmm. when he was just like the bad guy, just kind of the confident, the way he just kind of his mannerisms. It um totally sold me on Shinsuke Seth. Like I am it it, it sold me on Shinsuke more than I've been sold on him in a long time. And it equally gave me doubts about Seth without without Seth doing anything. Just Shinsuke being like, oh, hey, by the way, he's got an injured back nobody knows about. Like, holy crap, that opens up like a world of possibility we didn't know in kayfabe. You know, like, I just thought it executed perfectly. I'm all in on this now. It was It was amazing. Great job. I like it. I like it a lot. And by the way, the back injury is real. Like that is something that he deals with. So they took something from reality, used it in kayfabe and allowed Nakamura to look genius because apparently no one else has figured this out except Shinsuke was able to determine it. Anyway, later backstage, Rollins started out laughing and having fun before getting serious, admitting he does have two fractures in his lumbar spine. He's lived with it for four years. He said he doesn't know how much longer he'll be able to operate at his current level because of it. But dealing with it and fighting competitors who target it, that's all part of the job. Rollins got upset that Nakamura brought his family into it and didn't even show up to face him man to man. So he challenged him to do exactly that next week. I get that they wanted Rollins on the show. This promo, I actually felt was unnecessary. I would have rather him cut this at the start of Raw next week and then do the face to face segment later in the show. It didn't add to what Nakamura did earlier other than confirming that the injury was real. But... Rollins was very good, and it was nice to see him take a way more serious tone than he has for the majority of his feuds since winning the title. And I know Balor has really been it to this point, I guess. That's now that I'm thinking about it. Um, But even with Balor, he would get serious in parts, but he would also largely joke around with him. To see him only do that for like five seconds, and then the, the switch immediately flipped and he got serious, I really liked the presentation. So even with Rollins here, I didn't think it was necessary but it was good. This was the Seth Rollins I've been clamoring for for months on this podcast, as everybody knows. Uh, I thought it was a really good promo. I just thought it should have been in front of the crowd. That's another thing. The reactions he could have gotten by like, by getting serious, by saying, yeah, I I do have a back injury. Like it's tough. Like he, you wouldn't have people singing a song and stuff like that. Like I, I thought it was good. I understand why you want to respond, I guess, but, um, it was it was certainly good. I just thought it would have been even better, like you said, to maybe open up Raw next week. Yeah. Uh, so Paul Heyman, uh, unshaven and all gray-haired backstage at SmackDown, refused to give an update on the state of the bloodline or Roman Reigns' headspace. Kayla Braxton said that she was hearing rumors, which completely set him off to the point that he personally insulted her family. He also made fun of LA Knight and then took a phone call that made him happy. He shared that Jimmy Uso will be live on SmackDown Next week, the crowd in the background, you could hear them go from thrilled to like, aw, <laughs> like it was audible the way it happened. Uh, this was a nothing burger of a segment. And normally I wouldn't even say we should grade it, but it gets an automatic good because disheveled, unshaven Paul Heyman, who has not dyed his hair in a month, is when he looks his best and is at his best. <laughs> and that's what we got here. I love when he acts it up and hams it up this way. So it gets a good because of that. Yeah, I mean, nothing really much more to say than that. This will be the least we've talked about the bloodline on this podcast in yeah. a very, very long time. But 
That's about it. Not only that, it was like the third segment on the good, the bad, or the ugly. It wasn't even not the main event. It wasn't even the top of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, Becky Lynch stood in the ring for like 10 minutes on Raw, waiting for promos, packages, and commercials to end. She had new yellow highlights in her hair for the lemon gimmick. I thought it looked weird, Uh, but she did open hour three, and she talked about her legacy not being defined by wins or losses or championships, but rather survival. She said she may not be unbeatable, but she is unstoppable because she always fights. Then Trish Stratus and Zoe Stark interrupted, with Trish getting cheap pop after cheap pop, mentioning Canada. Then she turned on them for not being as good as Montreal or Toronto, and then she dropped. Yeah, all your sports teams, they're all failures. And she also unveiled a Merci Berku uh, Trish shirt. So instead of thank you, Trish, Merci Berku, which was great. Fans chanted, we don't give a fuck twice in French. So she called them frogs. And the we don't give a fuck, I was told by a French speaker who was listening and heard the chant. It wasn't that they were saying that to them. They were saying that to her, like basically shut up. That's what I was told. Uh, Trish said that she's sick and tired of having to prove herself to everyone after being in the game this long. She promised Becky would see a side of her in the cage that she's never seen before and quote, you're not gonna survive this one, bitch. Uh, Lynch brought the promo back around, remembering that they never actually announced what they were there to announce, which was that she will be fighting Zoe Stark next week in a Falls Count Anywhere match. This was a roller coaster. Um, It started, I thought, really well with a hot Becky promo. She remains the best woman on the mic in history. Uh, Then it completely fell off a cliff with Trish talking and rambling on and just, it it was ridiculous. Then the last like 15 seconds with Trish's promo and Becky punctuating it at the end, got it back on track. I'm still going bad because if you were going to grade it like minute by minute, more of it was boring and droll than it was exciting. And despite Becky starting strong and closing strong, you just, you know, this feud has gone on a month too long and they're stretching it out and they're trying to get us to pay back. I'm excited for the steel cage match. That's cool. I'm glad it's Becky and Trish. I think they're going to have a banger. I do, but the promos there were, there was a time you've, you've always disliked them. There was a time where I was down and I thought you were being a little bit too harsh. And I still believe that, but there's no being too harsh on this. This was bad. Yeah, it was bad. It was just, it was just weird. And Trish just, even even in the, the solo one she cut in the ring, like she can't quite get the promo pattern right. She has a problem like the, with the sarcasm. The, she's, the sarcasm doesn't hit right. For the sarcasm, the emphasis of certain words, and she doesn't end sentences like with punctuation. Right. So the crowd doesn't know to react because that's the thing they're supposed to react to. Yeah. So like, Everything she said made sense and you explained it well, but this one was even weirder because she was trying to lean into Canada and get them and then pull it back on them, Mm -hmm. but it didn't quite work. And it's Canada, but it's French Canada. And it's just, it was, it never clicked. It was, it was rough. Becky looked like she just really wanted to just start talking and get this back on track. She did. Yeah. She did at the end and brought the energy back up. Uh, So not great, but still looking forward to both the cage match and maybe even more of the false count anywhere match, which as listeners know, is my favorite stipulation for a match. So we're finally in the end game of this looking forward to it. It's been up and down. This has, this was a down. Yeah, it was definitely down. Not my favorite stipulation, but as I've said many times, false count anywhere, far superior to last man standing. And 
we don't get falls count anywhere enough. Uh, we did get one in AEW recently. What was it? Um, was it Adam Cole and Chris Jericho? And they did the fall, yes. I think, outside or something. It was it was really well done what they did. Yeah. And, and yes, I love them too. So Becky and Zoe, I think they're going to put on banger next week. I do. And if it is falls count anywhere, fingers crossed. And I say that for a real reason because we're going to talk about it later. Fingers crossed they get like 15 minutes next week on Raw. And I think that could be fantastic. And then the cage, obviously coming up at payback, that's awesome too. But yeah, this just did not hit the right way. Let me say one more thing before we move on. I want to talk about the lemons. Look, it was a good dig by Becky when Triple H pushed their match off of SummerSlam and she did the whole lemons and lemonade thing on social media. And then it was a really good poke back by Triple H at the press conference you know, to say turning lemons into lemonade and tweaked Becky and all that. And then allowing Becky to come out and drink lemonade with commentary on Raw, that was legitimately funny, especially when she sprayed it like Triple H does in his entrance. All of that was great, okay? But now, enough with the fucking lemons. For the love of all that is holy, stop trying to make the lemons happen. It's not gonna happen. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. That's it. I just had to say it. Bianca Belair and Charlotte Flair fought Io Sky and Bailey on SmackDown. Io missed a spot that made Charlotte look really stupid. She tried and failed to tag Bianca. Bailey clearly had to coach up Io during a stretch of this match, which was really awkward. If it was anyone else but Triple H on the book, like if Vince still had the book, I would be concerned about Io's like career because she fucked this up so bad, but uh, Bailey, Bailey saved her. The rest of the match was good, but there was a really, really awkward stretch early. Anyway, uh, Flair's nose got busted open before Belair had a great hot tag with a neckbreaker DDT combo on the heels. Charlotte did the really stupid cartwheel clothesline, but Bailey pushed her off the top rope outside with an ankle cell. She dodged over the moonsault and then dodged EO into the post. Bailey tried the figure four only to get punched. Belair got tagged in with Bailey eating a boot from Charlotte and the kiss of death for the babyface win. Now, this was the best Charlotte has looked in this latest run. And this was probably, despite the screw up early, the best women's tag team match we've seen in a decent while. We also got the right finish with Belair over Bailey because that's already happened. Flair doesn't need wins, and Io is obviously the champion, so she can't take the fall. But the truth, Chris, is this match happening didn't make much sense at all. Belair was at odds with Flair before SummerSlam, but now they're totally fine. And where's Shotzi in the Bailey feud? Why isn't Zelina Vega involved given she beat Io before Io cashed in the briefcase and won the title? The match that would have made more sense here would have been Io and Bailey against Shotzi and Zelina, probably with Zelina taking the fall, especially since Zelina helped Shotzi blindside Bailey just last week. It was ready-made booking for this spot. Plus, where was Asuka after getting attacked? But while I disagreed with the booking in its entirety, as you can tell, what we got from this match was good. It was fine. It was good. It just, it just, it kind of was what it was. It, it felt like mostly just kind of there to fill some space and get some big names on the card in front of the crowd. And that's about it. Now, I, I if I've said it once, I've probably said it I guess twice now, Uh, Charlotte and Bianca as a two-woman power trip tag team, I really do believe it would do business, Chris. Like they work super well together and 
if you want to legitimize the women's tag team division, which clearly WWE does not want to do, but if they did, you put them together, you make them champions. Better yet, it would take both of them out of the main title picture. I don't think there'd be any downside. Uh, I agree. I think that makes sense. I, I, I've liked them too as, as a team. I'm always a fan of two-man power trip type of stuff. Um, but I also like what's, we'll get into it later, but I like, um, I kind of like what the tag team situation is right, right now, at least so, so far. So I don't know, but, but you know, we're, we're in that weird spot where we're going into football season. We don't have a major event coming up. Do you try to do something bigger? Do, do some of these people take some time off? Which is which is what sometimes happens too. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know what happens next with all this. Uh, damage control attacked Bel Air backstage after the match. Bailey wrapped a chair around her bad knee. Io smashed it with another chair. The question now is whether Bianca is actually going to get written off or bounces back, maybe in two weeks after payback. This also didn't exactly provide clarity in terms of Io's next challenger, but it feels like there's no movement outside of Bel Air, Flair, and maybe Asuka. Now, granted. Based on the uneven draft, there's only like six other active women on the roster. Two of them, Alba Fire and Isla Dawn, they're a tag team and they've disappeared. BFAB is not legitimate. We discussed Shotzi and Zelina. Those are the two that should be used. And then you have Mi Chin on this show doing absolutely nothing but walking alongside the OC whenever they come out. This is my number one frustration about SmackDown right now. It's short matches and just kind of not much going on. I'm just, like I said, I was kind of waiting to see what exactly the next thing is. I'm not sure yet. Yeah. I'm talking about more like the limited talent that they're, that they're featuring in the women's division there. It's the same people just in yeah. a rotation and we've already seen it. So it's like, right. You need to, you have your, you just built up Shotzi a little bit. You've kind of built up Zelina Vega. She beat EO, put her in a feud, let her get a title match. Like they got to move on. They got to do something with this. Uh, moving over to raw Rhea Ripley fought Candice LeRae during her entrance. Candice did a hand gesture with Indy Hartwell which was exactly from the way. Uh, LeRae countered Riptide into a Tornado DDT and had a springboard moonsault. Ripley then caught her in midair in Prism Trap for the win in one minute and 21 seconds. Michael Cole called it a new wrinkle in her playbook. Ripley's been using the Prism Trap her entire main roster run and I think her entire WWE career. Uh, This was pathetic. It was a textbook way to make a thin women's roster look like absolute shit because they've now had Indy and Candice lose consecutive two-minute matches to Ripley in as many weeks. I don't give a shit that Raquel Rodriguez is the main feud. I don't care that you want to make Ripley look dominant. Why would you not let these other women get built up in six or eight minutes against Ripley? Why would you not want your top women's star in front of the crowd for a decent match where they can see her wrestle, appreciate her skill, and actually realize that she's dominant. I see no point in jobbing out Indy and Candice, especially if you're gonna make them a tag team, which it seems like they are, and especially Candice. She could be their Dolph Ziggler or their Chad Gable for the women's division, the one who can go against any person and make them look incredible while putting on a legitimately entertaining match. If you want squashes, That's where you use jobbers. That's where you call up NXT talent. Get creative. You don't use your very thin women's division and let Ripley just squash all of them because then what happens is, yeah, you have a Raquel Rodriguez feud for payback and then what? You go back into five months of her doing absolutely nothing. This was really, really bad. This is Raquel. 
crap! Yep, it, it was bad. I mean, look, Rhea Ripley got a lot of TV time for promos and Judgment Day stuff and, and stuff. It, it's it's just been the consistent thing since she became champion, and even before then, which was that like people are more into her what she's doing with the Judgment Day than I guess what she's doing as a wrestler. And they're not giving her any time as a wrestler to change that. But you can't. Yeah, you can't even say like, that. I, I was gonna say you can't even say that they're more into it because that's all they're getting. Right. Well, I mean, Judgment Day is very over. Like, like it, it, that's fair. But I'm just right, saying they're not getting nothing, her as a wrestler, to, so you can say they don't care about it. her. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. That's what I'm saying. So right. it's it's just surprising. Again, you know, we talked last week. The short women's matches in the Triple H era has been bizarre. And they're look, they got a lot of people on the show and stuff, and, and and they're doing all that. It's just it's been the same thing with Rhea since she became champ, other than like the the Natalia match. There's not been anything for her to really sink her teeth into as a wrestler on her own. It's just judgment day stuff, and so this is just kind of all happening in the background. And uh, I don't know, I will say though, with Raquel and Damian Priest, and we end up getting English, French. Spanish and Japanese all on Monday Night Raw, which was actually kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, so shout out for, for that. But um, in terms of what this was, it was it was nothing. I just it was whatever. We may have uh, gotten German. I guess I didn't grade it. Yeah, we may have gotten German as well. I forget if that was this week or last week where Gunther spoke in German. But yeah, that was part of it, too. Um, to your point, there were 14 women approximately, give or plus or minus one, let's say, on Raw Monday night. That's great. That's fantastic. We got less than three minutes of wrestling, despite 14 women being on the show. I mean, what, what, are you, like, what the fuck are we doing here? And I know I've been dropping a lot of F-bombs on this episode. That's not what we are. If you're a first-time listener, we don't curse that much. It's just how it's happened. I'm very frustrated what's happening with the women. Uh, but there was more here. Rodriguez entered after the bell with a single crutch, making it very obvious that she was faking it. She threw the crutch at Ripley. They brawled into the ring, and then Raquel came out on top after a fallaway slam. Then she announced that she was cleared and she got her title match at Payback. The promo was fine, but this did not make what came before it any better. In fact, it would have made a lot more sense for this to happen if Ripley had gone six or eight minutes with Candice and was tired. Instead, she was fresh, so she actually looked worse getting beaten down by Rodriguez than she otherwise would have. The women's booking, it's improving a little bit storyline-wise, but it has so much further to go. Ripley has only had seven singles matches since winning the title at WrestleMania. Those have gone for a combined 32 minutes, four and a half per match on average. And none of the competitors have been anyone you would even briefly consider a real challenger. That's nearly five full months of nothing for the women's champion, like in terms of a wrestling standpoint. And she's been on TV a lot. And like you said, She's done great character work and great stuff with the Judgment Day, but she's the women's world champion. They literally rebranded the title around her, and this is what we're getting? That is one big pile of shit. Now, that said, Ripley and Rodriguez at Payback, it's going to bang. How do I know that? Because Ripley, Rodriguez, and NXT banged, I think, two different times. It's going to be a great match, and people are going to really be pleased with what they see from Raquel here. But you can't help but think, Okay, yeah, fine. They finally got her a real match, and it's on payback five months after she won the title. Yeah, I mean the numbers right there just say it all. It's been a very it's weird because it's been a very disappointing 
championship run through no fault of her own, just literally the booking she's been given. Right. At the same time, she has been extremely prominently featured with Judgment Day. They just, I don't know. I, I guess they're figuring she's getting plenty of TV time that way. What she does with the belt doesn't matter. I I don't know. She wasn't on SummerSlam. You know, we, we thought we might get something there. So it's just, there's just nothing happening on that part of it, which is weird because she is so over yeah. because of the Judgment Day stuff. Like you could easily build up some big feuds for her. They're just not doing it. It's actually amazing. Like they somehow were able to make her the top woman in the entire company as champion, despite not wrestling at all or getting over in the ring. Like on one hand, it's praiseworthy, but on the other, it's like, what if she actually was wrestling and and entertaining people on top of what she's doing as a character and with Judgment Day? It would be even better. They got to get their heads out of their asses. Uh, Tommaso Ciampa finally got his signature crouching steel chair promo on TV. He talked about being extremely close to reaching his goals, only to see the men who defeated him, Shinsuke Nakamura and Chad Gable, succeeding while he is still stuck. He talked about breaking out of a funk and doing it yourself, and then he threw the chair. As if the DIY teases have not been obvious enough, there you go. And coming out of the women's segment that preceded it, now we have DIY and The Way mentions on a single episode of Raw. I'm very curious to see how all of this is going to be received once it happens. They really need to time Johnny Gargano's return right. But for me, this promo was definitely good. Um, I guess I like if DIY happens, I'm excited for that. Sure. I just I have there's been no reason to care about Champa since basically he came up on the main roster. You know, I, I, I know his background and everything. I, I love him, but just I was just like, all right, sure. All right. I, I guess I'll give it a light good but I'm still just kind of waiting for something else to happen. He made good points and everything, but it's also interesting too. We'll get into it later. That Champa uh, promo ends and it fades into Miz about to cut a promo. And you're like, oh yeah, I remember when these two guys right. were together and it didn't work out for whatever happened. Just things happened and Miz is still doing his stuff, but Champa's still figuring it out, I guess. Don't forget, you're grading the promo, though, not the booking of him. But but yes, I, you are right where, and I felt the same way about Johnny Gargano. It's like, Gargano was great in the Elimination Chamber. And Champa has had some individually great moments in matches that we've talked about. He should have won, but instead lost, clearly because they're telling the story with DIY. But you can't help but think, what if he did beat Bronson Reed? What if he did beat The Miz in that um, no DQ street fight, whatever the hell that was, where the crowd was ready to explode for him and they didn't go with it. And now he cuts this promo and I'm not saying people didn't care. I cared. I'm a Champa fan. But the common fan, the average fan who may not know him from NXT and may not know Gargano from NXT and may not know DIY is even a thing that has existed previously. That is uh, the, the people that do know that might be a small subsection of the WWE fan base. So I love that Triple H is catering to me and catering to some of those fans by bringing back these things that we know are successful and we think can work on the main roster. But you're not giving us much reason to be excited for this guy. And you're not giving us much reason to be excited for Gargano to come back. Maybe once he does come back, they do highlight clips and they show stuff. I don't know, but you are right about that. Like for an average fan who is not familiar with NXT, it's like, okay, this guy can talk, cool, but what else is there about him? They need to get to that. Uh, yeah. the, the Grayson Waller effect had Rey Mysterio and Santos Escobar as guests on SmackDown. Santos came out in a full leg brace 
and Grayson was obviously trying to be a wedge driver based on last week's events. Escobar said Austin Theory is the only person he's angry at. So Theory came out and he threw a fit about losing the United States Championship. Then he demanded that Adam Pierce give him the title back. Seconds after Pierce entered, LA Knight followed him, shitting on Theory's title reign, saying he would eventually be the champion. So he pitched a number one contenders match to Pierce and he immediately accepted that. He also did the LA Knight call and response the way I have been asking for him to do it for weeks now. I don't know if you caught that, Chris. He said LA Knight and then the crowd said, yeah, this was probably the best usage of the Waller effect segment because it had a specific purpose. The one missing element was something between Escobar and Mysterio indicating Santos might get a title match when he's healthy. I mean, he is the rightful number one contender. That did not go away from him. He should still be the number one contender. And it seems like that was kind of glossed over. But Theory actually came out. He did some of his best mic work in a while. And this was easily Knight's most consistent promo since he's been getting the mic on a weekly basis. I thought it was a good opener to SmackDown. I thought it was a great opener. A lot of... Look, Roman Reigns is not on the show for a bit. The bloodline is deuces. These are the guys who are going to carry SmackDown for a bit. So I liked putting it all together. A lot of talent in this spot. Question, is Escobar really hurt? I don't believe so. I'm I'm just so confused. I've I've lost all track of things because Ray got hurt. Uh, Then he wins the match anyway because Santos gets hurt. Kayfabe hurt. I, I I don't know. And that, now we're doing a number one contender match. Like, we had this invitational tournament that was supposed to cleanly determine and, and give presumably Escobar this moment. And this, it just has not at all played out the way I think we thought, or maybe even they thought, but theory, I thought he was great here. Mm-hmm. This was the most interesting promo, the most entry he's had in a long time where he's not just a smarmy champion you know, he's like, he's upset about things. He's demanding things. Like he, there was a lot there for him to chew on. I like that. Adam Pierce was great. When the, the moment he came out, I've been giving him some praise. And then the LA night music hits and the crowd goes nuts in Toronto. Like LA night, we'll get into the, the next bit, but he's on both shows right now. He's like him and Miz are the only guys on both shows. So they're riding him right now. And he, he delivers a great to the point promo. Does the catchphrases the way you like it. And it sets up LA Knight Theory, number one contender. I was like, damn, I'm excited for this. So great, great way to open the show. You may say great, but it's technically good. Let's just, for the record, for anyone who's keeping track, it's a good from Chris there on that segment. Uh, Knight and Theory in the number one contendership, as you mentioned. Miz entered before the bell and joined commentary. He compared Knight to Fandango and Eugene rather than The Rock and Steve Austin. I thought that was hysterical. Uh, This crowd popped with every semi-decent move that Knight executed. Miz distracted late, but Knight caught Theory with a spike DDT. So then Miz distracted again. Knight chased him around the ring and got rolled up with the tights by Theory. Look, LA came off like an idiot here, being completely suckered in by Miz with a title shot on the line. It's one thing if it's a match he doesn't care about. There's a title shot on the line. I really dislike booking like that. It's one thing to distract a dude on the apron quickly, but for Knight to like chase Miz around was stupid. The heel winning and Knight being away from the US title picture still, that remains the right move though. We got nice work from both guys. As you mentioned, Theory was kind of elevated here a little bit. This was a borderline good for the match from me. Yeah, the, the match was fine. It was good. It was it was what you'd expect between these two. 
I, I, I'll give it a good. My concern, well, because so at the time I was like, oh, is Escobar really hurt? Maybe they're going to go back to LA Knight winning the U.S. championship here and we're going to go back to what I wanted him to do. So I was excited for that. And then he loses and I'm like, damn, like this happened again. This is my concern going into SummerSlam kind of, which was like, LA Knight keeps saying he's going to do these things and not doing it. Money in the bank, U.S. title. Here's another U.S. I'm coming. I'm getting that U.S. title. And then he doesn't. It's just like he's just he's calling his shot a lot because it's the nature of his character, but then doesn't get it. I know he's doing the Miz feud and that's good and everything. But I was just like, ah, it's another loss for him in a big spot. He's had a lot of those. He's fine. Company's obviously pushing him. He's on both shows, but I was like, ah, I, I was excited for that. I was legitimately let down when he didn't win. Yeah, I mean, I didn't expect him to win when the match was made, so I wasn't let down by it. I did. I did until the Miz came out. When the Miz came out, I'm like, oh, okay. Now, now I think I know. You know, well, Ray's the champion, so they're not going to put Ray against LA Knight. Like, and Theory's right there. He just he deserves, you know, in kayfabe a, a rematch because he didn't get to prepare for his opponent, even though he's the one who attacked Escobar. But I'm just saying, like. For me, it worked. Um, you are, you know, the thing that you keep asking about is Escobar's knee injury real. I'm just assuming it's not because it's wrestling, obviously. But I will say, if he does have a real knee injury, that would explain a lot of this booking that has confounded me with Mysterio ultimately being the one to win the title when it seemed like it was a great spot for Escobar. And again, I know Escobar was the planned winner over Mysterio in that number one contendership mini tournament that they did. So... You know, if he is hurt and this is a long-term thing, then a lot of this makes more sense, but I just am assuming that's not the case. Regardless, let's keep going. The Miz put himself over on Raw, repeating that Knight is not on his level. He reminded that Pierce let him pick his opponent for the show. If you remember, he's been promoting it all week as the guy he's going to face is tougher than LA Knight. I think he also said he was bigger. Obviously, that was not the case. So Miz introduces his opponent and it is Akira Tozawa. Uh, Miz called the 24-7 title a watered-down throwback of the Attitude Era, just like Knight, which is exactly what that was. All Tozawa did, though, was say, yeah, the crowd fully bought in and loved it. He just answered every question doing yeah like LA Knight. Knight's music hit as soon as the bell rang for the match that distracted Miz into eating offense. Then Knight joined commentary. Tozawa hit a hurricanrana off the announce table lid, which was really cool. Miz got knees up on a flying senton finisher, then stared at Knight as he went for a skull-crushing finale, except as he was taunting, Tozawa countered him into a rolling pinning combination for the upset win and a really nice pop from the crowd. Then Knight hit him, uh, him being Miz, with BFT to end the segment. Don't get me wrong, this was good, okay? Fun deal overall. But the fact that this got four times as much time on TV as the Rhea Ripley match on Raw was pathetic. I don't really have any... Thing else to talk about here. I mean, I'm not surprised. He's the most over guy in the company right now, and he's they're putting him on two shows. Miz and Tazawa alone without Knight got more time than Rhea Ripley. He got twice as much time sure. as Rhea Ripley. Sure. First off, Miz, no need to take shots at Huba Stank. Like that, that was uncalled for as, as someone who enjoyed their music and still does from from, from now and uh every now and then. Um I as much as I complained about the U.S. title thing in L.A. Knight not winning, The Miz really is the perfect test for L.A. Knight. I, I know I missed the second half of the podcast last week, so I couldn't really get into it. Mm -hmm. But everything The Miz is saying 
is not wrong. Like, the Miz has seen so many guys come and go. How many guys have been attached to Miz as a sidekick and they and it doesn't work out if they're not with the Miz? Like, th- that's why this is such a good test for LA Knight to understand what it takes to be in that spot and see if he can come out of it as hot as he was. And, and, and Miz leaning into these real things that people are saying, it's a direct challenge to him to respond to that and, and thrive in that moment. So I think this is a really good setup for him, a really good feud for him. We just talked about Champa. Look where Champa is right now. After right. He was do, doing a Miz thing. So it's um in the Miz is a guy who did survive through everything. People didn't think he would. So I think it's a good setup. I'm excited for it. Crowd's hot for it. They're putting both these guys on both shows. Like it just they're they're really liking what they have, and the crowd's eating it up. So I, I still thought this was a good Tazawa was funny. This this all worked. Anytime we're getting more LA Knight and it's working, mm-hmm. that that's a good in my book. For me, I will say, huh, it's tough to say this. I, I feel like I, I don't want them to overexpose him. And I know you're gonna say, well, look, Silver right. King, back in the day, Raw and SmackDown, it was one brand, you know, during the Attitude Era, and Austin was on both shows and Rock was on both shows. They didn't get ex- uh, overexposed. True, um, but they were main eventers, right? And LA Knight, despite being super over, which is great, he's not a main eventer and he's not a champion. I just, I understand what they're doing with Miz. And if this ends at payback or shortly thereafter, fine. But I don't really think putting LA Knight on both shows every week going forward is the right move. I think that is where you overexpose someone. I would, see, I would, I would disagree. Because like all he did on this show was show up, hit a BFT, and the crowd got to cheer. Like like that's that's enough of a, of an, that's enough of it. Because every, like when you go to these, when you go to shows, everybody's wearing LA Night shirts. Everybody's saying, yeah, they just want to have an LA Night moment. Now you could say, hey, save it for the dark segment or something right. like that. Right. Maybe that that that's fair. But I, I think they're not doing too much yet. But that's, again, part of the challenge. He's going to have to be more than catchphrases and a couple other things. Right. And by th- putting him on two shows and doing this, he's going to have to figure that out. And so, like... I, I'm okay with it because I'm sure there is part of WWE that really does believe, hey, six months when people are sick of the catchphrases, it's not going to work anymore. So, like, they're trying to figure that out now because LA Knight's like 40 years old. Like, you don't have, he's not, it's not like he's going to have years to figure this out and, and work on it, whatever. You've got something now, highlight it, shine a very light bright on it now, and see if he can, if he give, give the crowd what they want and see if he can work it out and be more than that. So I, I, I like what they're doing. I, I, I see your complaint or your, your concern mm-hmm. about overexposing him, but I think they've done it just enough in a way where it's not too much yet. Yeah, no, totally fair. Uh, other than you saying a very light, bright, um, I'm with you. Yeah, you got that right for sure. Uh, New Day fought the sword and the stoned. Uh, Drew McIntyre did a toss belly to belly suplex of Matt Riddle as a tope over the ropes. The dual match story was New Day's experience and Riddle's ineffectiveness at getting out of trouble. Uh, Riddle caught Kofi Kingston flying with a final flash knee, then hit a tremendous fisherman suplex on Xavier Woods. Right as Riddle finally broke free, Eric pulled McIntyre off the apron blind to the referee. Kofi then caught Riddle with Trouble in Paradise for the win. The Raiders came in and laid out all three guys with McIntyre clearing them from the ring. I was just interested to see the match as presented 
But the interference kind of worked to give McIntyre and Riddle something to do uh, with New Day getting the win. This gets a good for me because we got a real finish rather than like a cheap DQ and a triple threat or something like that, which is what would have happened back in the day. And the work was really exciting throughout. New Day got a quality win in their return match. I never hate seeing Kofi Kingston hit his finisher and getting the win. The guy is a former WWE champion after all. I have this weird, I don't even want to put it out there, okay? But I have this weird, like, sneaking suspicion that something might be cooking with, like, McIntyre and the Raiders. Maybe they get rid of Valhalla and they do something much more serious as a trio. They just all have a similar look. I know those guys aren't Scottish and stuff, but, like, I don't know. There's just something going on with them as a trio that is piquing my interest where I'm wondering if that's what's happening. Maybe I'm being pessimistic. It just seems like something Triple H would do. Nevertheless, uh, match was good. I liked the fact that Kingston got the fall. I liked the way they protected the faces um, and kept kind of Riddle and McIntyre together, at least for the short term. We're going to talk more about that in a moment, but I want to get you in first. Yep, I, I agree with everything you said there. I, I am kind of curious with McIntyre. He's just He hasn't really been in a prominent spot or had clear direction in quite a while basically since wrestlemania so maybe they're just trying to recreate the the uh the riddle randy magic or something but um i like it it's it's good actually was it was last week i think uh cole said they should be called the scottish highlanders or whatever and i was like why don't you just call them the highlanders (laughs) and then i looked it up and there was a there was a tag team called the yes yes ruthless aggression era when i wasn't paying attention so uh as there's enough obviously new day try to give him another name so it's uh it's it's fine it's fun but drew doesn't have the um it's not quite the same as it was with randy orton yet no they're still working on it but it's been fine i've enjoyed it and i don't think it's supposed to be so like later backstage mcintyre told riddle their partnership's just not going to work out new day came up they tried to get drew to change his mind because as a tag team with a lot of experience they thought that Drew and Matt worked well together. New Day gave them the tag team name Mick Riddle, which is like, of all the great names that you could call them, Mick Riddle is probably the worst of all of them. I mean, I gave you Sword and the Stone. That's a great name. Like, there's so many better options than Mick Riddle. But regardless, I think it was all just in fun in the moment. Uh, They also thanked McIntyre for getting their back in the ring against the Viking Raiders, saying that they would give uh, McIntyre and Riddle a rematch in two weeks if he is down for it. They all dapped up. Riddle said, hey, man, just give me one more chance for us to tag together before you're out. Drew did not say no, and Riddle popped because of that, excited that seemingly they're going to tag again in two weeks and fight New Day, assuming New Day gets past Viking Raiders. It was a good segment to set a couple weeks of storytelling through payback. Drew was solid, no selling Riddle's goofiness. I'm still of the belief, though, that they're doing basically the RK Bro storyline with the opposite outcome. Rather than McIntyre buying in, he turns on Riddle, goes heel. I think it needs to happen. Uh, McIntyre is a great heel, as we've seen before. He just needs something, like you said, to refresh him and give him direction. Because then, if you have him as a heel, you have McIntyre Rollins. And maybe McIntyre is even the one who beats Rollins for the title. There's a lot of interesting things you could do there. So that's my guess going forward. But I really like this backstage segment. Yeah, I, I like that idea. That's my main point is that... Drew, I, I, I can't tell if he's just not totally in it or if he's just like kayfabe, not interested in Riddle. Yeah, it's, it's kayfabe. It's, no, it's it kayfabe. like there's yeah. not a connection there yet, but it might be exactly what you're saying, in, in which case it would make sense. So we'll see. 
Yeah, he's in kayfabe. He's being pulled along by another baby face that's annoying him. But he's like, I'm a good guy, yeah. so I should work with him and and I should, you know, give him a chance and all this. But at the same time, he's really annoying me. Because if you notice, whenever they do right. these segments, uh, McIntyre will try to talk. Like Riddle will ask him a question. He'll answer. And then Riddle will just cut him off and talk over him. So, like, they're building yeah, it, him yeah. getting pissed off at him. Yeah, it's like it's different than when McIntyre is with the brawling brutes, you know. Right. It, it's a different dynamic. So I'm curious. Exactly. Uh, well, they drink beer and Riddle smokes weed. So it's two totally different uh, vices, right? So he, he gets what the brutes do. He doesn't really understand seemingly uh, what Riddle's doing. Uh, the Street Profits uh, fought the OC on SmackDown. The Profits came out to their standard music and their solo cup entrance, but their gear was finally not based on local sports teams. Angelo Dawkins still had the really weird like tank top and shorts combination. He's fit now. Get this guy better regular gear. He doesn't need to wear that anymore. Anyway, the profits were aggressive here with Montez Ford hitting a frog splash early for a broken fall. Carl Anderson got to deliver his perfect spine buster to Ford, but he went crazy with a clothesline and tope con hero. Then uh, I think Ford blind tagged as the profits combined to debut a new Liger bomb neck breaker finisher for the win. Bobby Lashley came out in a beautiful suit to raise their arms after the bell. No doubt the profits looked great here. Still had a lot of their like familiar elements, but they added aggression and a, a couple fresh moves. My only notes on the presentation, I said, Dawkins, change your gear. He can look so much better and get rid of the solo cup shtick. It does not fit with their yeah. aesthetic now. You don't need that anymore. Otherwise, this was really strong for repackaging and it set them off in the right direction. It was good. Yeah, it, it was good. It was fine, but you're right. It's doing the street, the the, the cups on top of all that is a little weird. Maybe they're just trying to take little pieces at a time as opposed to a hard turn on things. But I'm also not sure, like, do we, are we cheering them or not? You know, like we right. haven't quite figured that out. No, true, because they interrupted a match with baby faces and the OC are baby faces as well. And they beat the shit out of them. So, yeah, it seems like the fans want to cheer the them. And so it's, yeah. Yeah, it seems like the fans yeah. want to cheer them, but they're being booked as at best tweeners maybe actual heels, but we'll find out, you know, obviously the direction they go. And if Bianca Belair is written off, it's very possible that she comes back and aligns with them. And man, that would be sick to see all four of them together. Uh, on Raw, we had Chelsea Green and Piper Niven against Caden Carter and Katana Chance in a non-title match. Chelsea was talking shit in gorilla position. Piper just cut her off and forced her to go to the ring. It was pretty funny, the dynamic between them. We also got a really short highlight package of Piper dominating uh, women from NXT and the main roster. Really smart way to kind of just like quick reintroduce her because she was gone for so long. Cole put over the faces as the longest reigning NXT women's tag team champions. They did a great handstand rotating splash off the ropes. The crowd popped huge for that. And then Piper tagged in blind, hit a running crossbody on Katana, and the heels won in a minute and 36 seconds. Chance looks like, like she was like splattered across the canvas. This was somehow worse than the Ripley match because at least Candace hit three moves and Carter and Chance hit one move. So let's just put this in perspective, okay? In the last two weeks, they have taken Candace, Indy, Caden, and Katana and told us as viewers they are all completely worthless as wrestlers. Those four are the only two legitimate women's tag teams on the brand other than the champions. They're two of three other than the champions in the entire company, the others being Alba Fire and Isla Dawn who have disappeared from television. If you're trying to show that Chelsea and Piper are figuring it out as a team, 
then let them struggle for a couple minutes against some jobbers or NXT superstars, and then ultimately have Piper come in and squash them. Why are you wasting your main competitors that can give real matches? Like, what the fuck are we doing here? Every time Caden and Katana get time in the ring, the crowd comes around and pops for them. They had a longer match against Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler than they did against Chelsea Green and Piper Niven by like a factor of five. This was straight up awful. And again, we had two women's matches on this show. I don't care that 14 women were on Raw. I don't care that we had a really long segment with Becky Lynch and Trish Stratus. You cannot give us two women's matches on Raw and have them go three total minutes, less than three total minutes. It's a three-hour program. We cannot effort 15 minutes of women's wrestling in three hours. Fuck off. This right here was ugly. Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. See, this is interesting because I mostly disagree. Okay. Everything else about all the other issues with the women's division, completely true. We've talked about them. But in this specific instance, the idea that Chelsea was the tag champ and she thinks she's amazing, but she can't get it done. And Piper Niven is just coming in and cleaning house and getting it done. I think that's an interesting story. Now, it should have been more than two minutes or whatever it was. Give them a little bit more time. Have Chelsea really get beat up or, or something. But I, two weeks in, I love this duo. I, I loved Chelsea Green is like saying things to, to Piper to kind of uh, prepare and stuff like that. And Piper just shoves her out of her face. I, I, I love Piper picking up Chelsea after they won to carry her back. I am all in on these two. And I think there's a lot of fun we could have here. I think this is, it's, it's going to be a better version of like Alexa Bliss and Nia Jax maybe. Um, so overall, I'm loving these two. And this segment I thought was fine on its own because Kate and Carter and Katanches have done nothing on the main roster. Who, who are they? Um, but the larger point of women's division needs tag teams, needs competitors. If you're squashing everybody, it doesn't make sense. I was fine with a squash here. I wasn't fine with a squash Rhea Candice LeRae because the squash here is the story that Piper Niven is, is going to be this dominant force and carry this tag team while Chelsea's going to kind of try to take all the credit and stuff like that. So I liked this. Um, I, I'm giving this a good okay. on its own, but the larger issue is is certainly fair. You don't care about a minute 36 match making Katana and Caden look like shit. It should have been longer. Yes, I said that. I'm but just I saying, also think like, like it's the, you need you need to you need, Caden and Katana need to be built up more anyway. Um, but they but had kind yes, of no, done of that. I, of course, I wanted longer than a minute. Of course, I of course I wanted longer than a minute and a half. I'm just saying they had kind of done that because the last time we really saw them was against Rousey and Baszler, and they they wrestled them and they looked great, and then they come back and they squash them here to Chelsea Green and Piper Niven. I mean. I love Piper and like, I'm happy she's back. And the fact that they even had to do the video package for her tells you that she was gone for way too long and it didn't make sense that she was gone for that long. Again, unless there's something that we don't know about, um, something circumstantial. But yeah, I don't know. I, I can't get with you on that, but hey, it's, it's okay. We're allowed to disagree. Lastly, really quick, Shayna Baszler got a highlight package that showed off her domination of the women's division and stated her directive of letting the world burn. 
provisional good, you know, if they do something with it. But there wasn't much to it on its own. I did think the visuals, though, with the x-ray of like all the bones she's broken of the women due to moves that she's delivered. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it, it was good. Um, you'd like, you know, coming out of beating Ronda Rousey to kind of like a big push. Shayna Baszler coming. She's got a match at the next pay-per-view. She starts going on a big winning streak. It's not happening. Various reasons to that. We can't have, I guess, too many, too dominant women in the division, which is, again, an issue. Um, but this itself was fine. I just hope, I just want to make sure they capitalize on the Ronda thing. Even if it wasn't good, it's still a win. Right. And so this is a moment for Shayna. Shayna was great in that feud. Great cut and promos. I want to make sure we, we stick with that. No doubt. So real quick, a look at the updated WWE payback card. World Heavyweight Championship, Seth Rollins against Shinsuke Nakamura. Women's World Championship, Rhea Ripley against Raquel Rodriguez. Becky Lynch versus Trish Stratus inside a steel cage. Those are the three official matches. The other three that might get added, possibly Intercontinental Championship, Gunther against Chad Gable. Maybe LA Knight against The Miz. Chris, to me, that feels way more like a TV feud and match than it is on a premium live event. What do you think about that one? I I don't think... If you do it on a pay-per-view, it feels like it's got to be the LA Knight moment. It Mm -hmm. feels like maybe you do one or two matches on TV before you do the pay-per-view match, which Survivor Series, which I've heard there's a Slim Jim sponsorship again coming back around for that. So it would make sense. That would be interesting if, I mean, if they really dragged it out, LA Knight captaining one team, Miz captaining the other team, that could possibly work, especially since they're on different brands. So there is even more reason if you do brand versus brand, that could kind of all come together. And Slim Jim could even sponsor the one traditional Survivor Series match if that's what they go go with. That would be interesting. Um, The only other match I can really see would be maybe something with the US title. There's no clear challenger for the WWE Women's Championship, EO Sky. Maybe they can develop that this coming SmackDown. And again, the Judgment Day stuff, it's like, yeah, they could, but are they going to? It could be a tag team title match. It could be Cody in a singles match. It could be another six man um, with a stipulation perhaps. I don't know, but that's where payback stands. Not that developed of a card. Definitely seems to me, Chris, like a B-level card, despite the fact that the three matches already booked are going to be great matches, I think. I mean, it just it's the storylines coming in that makes it feel like a B-level card. Yeah, we're, we're not expecting eight, nine match cards again now because we're on the B-level pay-per-view, but um, surprised to only have three matches with only three television shows left. Yeah, exactly. All right, that was the good, the bad, and the ugly, which allows us to wrap up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast with our final segment, The Last Word. So DJ, take the need to win, just drop it on the record. We gon' have this poppin' in a second. That's why we always say the best cut last to make the scratch and mix for it like fresh cut grass. So we have Cigar Man at IT Guy 26 he wrote in. It's kind of a two-parter. First, he said that Kevin Patrick had his best night as a commentator Friday on SmackDown, especially as a lead commentator. And he said, as much as Jim Ross reigns supreme as the GOAT commentator for many decades, he thinks Michael Cole has now overtaken that mantle in WWE. What do we think? So I'll take both of those parts uh, quick, and then I'll get you, and we'll kind of get out of here. Did Kevin Patrick have his best night on commentary? I couldn't tell you because just being candid, I think I've zoned him out now. Like, I think it's one of those deals where I hear him, I don't like it, and it doesn't necessarily register to me. I was floored that Kevin Patrick 
called the end of Edge's match, and it was not Michael Cole, especially if that ends up being his retirement match. You would think you want Cole on that call, and Kevin Patrick being in that spot just did not fit. I will say that this past Friday, I don't have any notes here of Patrick being notably bad, and usually there might be one or two things I point out where I'm actively angry at the commentary that he did. Meanwhile, this week, I actually had a couple of those notes for Cole based on what he said on Raw. I'm assuming that's because Cole is still getting used to the people on Raw and maybe he just hasn't called as many of their matches. Now, in terms of the second part of the question, uh, Jim Ross versus Michael Cole. Look, I think Cole is having a resurgence right now and it's great that he's getting his flowers. We're praising him. A lot of other people are praising him. It started with the return of Pat McAfee and it's continued even with McAfee leaving with Triple H Uh, sitting in gorilla position instead of Vince McMahon and Cole having a lot more freedom. He's been great. That doesn't change the fact that for the vast majority of his career in WWE, he did have Vince McMahon in his ear. And because of that, his commentary suffered. So I think Cole is fantastic. But if you're putting him head to head with Jim Ross, there are legitimately a ton of legendary calls that ring in my ears with Jim Ross's voice. And while Cole is great, and he definitely has a few to his name, over his entire 20 plus year tenure, and probably more recently than he's had in some of those years in the past, JR for me is still above Cole and probably always will be. But I do think it's a fair conversation. And I don't know that five years ago, I would have said it's a fair conversation. It's very much the like, is John Cena the goat conversation? Mm -hmm. We're like, no, no, he's not. But but like, by the end, they'll have the accolades, the longevity, the the all that kind of stuff where like I could see WWE kind of like trying to like push that. But no, J- Jim Ross is the greatest of all time. Gorilla Monsoon was better, too, as well. Like Cole is not near Cole is very solid and reliable, but not near the top, not at the top for me at, at, at all. Um, nothing against him. It's just it's a different kind of commentary. We used to have commentators who would kind of weave stories as they kind of commentated matches. And Cole's just, Cole's just never kind of been that guy. He's been more of a reporter type commentator, which is his background. So it, it, it fits. Um, Jim Ross, still the greatest of all time. Kevin Patrick, coincidentally, I turned on the uh, MLS Leagues Cup uh, shootout between Miami and Nashville a couple of days ago. And uh, Kevin Patrick was in the booth. Uh, I don't think he was the lead commentator, but he was part of that. And I heard him. I was like, oh, hey, there's that guy. I heard him calling a little bit of soccer and it was it was good. You know, like people he's he's always been much more natural at that than I think the wrestling Um, like you was at his best WWE call on SmackDown. I don't know. Like, again, I I couldn't there was nothing that stuck out to me enough for it to be memorable. You know, we're kind of, I guess, at that point where we're starting to kind of tune him out good or bad. I don't know. Um, So just, he's still, he is what he is still. Absolutely. All right, folks. Well, look, that was the WWE edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast this week. Thanks, of course, to Vintage Chris Vanini for joining yours truly, the Silver King, Adam Silverstein. On the way out, a reminder, what is still to come here at Getting Over on Wednesday, we will be back with your NXT Heatwave recap. Also may have some review of NJPW G1 Climax, the two semifinals and the final match. If I have time, we will add it to Wednesday's show. If not, it will come in a future episode. And then on Thursday, your AEW All-In Ultimate Preview. We wrap up the week with AEW All-In Instant Analysis and Vintage. 
will join the Silver King for both of those shows. So make sure you do not miss them. That means next week is going to be an even more loaded week than this one is. Why? Because not only will we have whatever fallout exists from All In, we're going to be giving you an ultimate preview for WWE Payback, an ultimate preview for AEW All Out because they're running back-to-back pay-per-views and an NXT episode. So I don't even want to count the number of shows that is, but there's going to be a shitload plus extra instant analysis on the weekends over the next two weeks. And of course, for Vintage and I, week one of the college football season upcoming as well. Not great to have WWE and AEW both on that same weekend. We are going to be exhausted. On the way out of here, the reminders as always. First, please do not forget that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, as you heard earlier, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, and all of that good stuff. And please also remember, I happen to love the number five and i hope you do as well because for five bucks a month or fifty dollars for the year you can become an official getting overhead visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over sign up you get bonus audio three to four shows a week you get news posts at least once a week and your money directly goes to supporting getting over keeping this show going and of course putting a little coin in my pocket and chris's pocket as well Thank you all for listening once again to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.